0: Episode of the Being Human and Doing Psychotherapy podcast, where uh, I'm curious about what is the human bit about being the psychotherapist and how we may be hiding that bit behind our roles and also what is the psychotherapeutic part that is resides in all of us and how we can harness that in our lives. So today I'm joined by Michael Soth, Who is a body psychotherapist? And uh, I'm very curious to hear his story. So, welcome, Michael.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Um, Yeah, as I said, I start this podcast by asking a simple question (laughs) Who are you? And what are some words that you identify identify yourself with?
2: That's not a simple question. (laughs) I know. That's a trick question, that's a trap question, because uh, the self is a process. Mm. So whatever descriptions you wrap around it, uh, that's like trying to catch the river where it was yesterday. So one way around that is to just phrase it in terms of feedback that people tend to give me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been a psychotherapist. there's a psychoanalyst in the 1930s who said a drastic thing, uh, kind of, uh, which was that there's only one person who gets attracted to psychotherapy. He he's talked about psychoanalysis. There's only one person who gets attracted, one kind of person, and that's somebody in pain. And once they have got attracted to it and trained in it, there's two kinds, those that deal with it and those that don't. So he's phrasing it in a controversial, provocative, kind of categorical way, as if there is you either deal with it or you don't deal with it, as if there's only an on-off switch. But he's being provocative. But of course, he's making a point. Mm -hmm. Um, I got attracted to psychotherapy because I was in considerable pain. Um, So the first part of his claim, I think is absolutely true, uh, for me anyway. Um, And then the question is, yeah, do we deal with it? Don't we deal with it? What's generally underestimated is how much psychotherapy, as you already implied, can be used as a defense, What, what in our own jargon we call a defense. So the whole psychotherapeutic edifice, the role, the theories, the techniques, the assumptions, the philosophy of it all, it can have a revealing and a kind of a developmental effect on the therapist and on the client. And it can have a defensive and damaging and uh, effect on the therapist and the client uh, in the sense that it can abort development. You can use psychotherapeutic understanding and the categories and concepts of it quite easily to keep yourself stuck for years. And there are many therapists that I can think of, uh, maybe I encountered them through training or supervision, who years after having invested tens of thousands of pounds and years of their life into becoming therapists and having practiced as therapists, who come to supervision and say, not always as bluntly and articulately and transparently and to the point, but uh, if we streamline it, uh, who say, I never had good therapy for myself, I realize now, what am I doing? Practicing therapy that I don't experience as working, that feels fraudulent to me. And I'm torn apart by presenting the appearance of a role that is not filled by a deep process that I can have belief and faith in. What am I offering? What am I selling? What am I presenting? Mm -hmm. So that goes right to the heart of what you were saying there about the role and the person inside the role. And... um, one of the benefits of the humanistic tradition, which is what I come from in the early 80s, uh, eventually we became more integrative and you know some people now call me more psychoanalytic than the psychoanalysts in certain things that I say or you know, perspectives. Um, but the origins are definitely humanistic. And the whole training I did, which I was attracted to, which was the Chiron Center for Body Psychotherapy. It wasn't called like that at the beginning, but that's training that I got attracted to, and um, uh, which I then used to deal with it and not deal with the pain. Um, The the benefits of the humanistic atmosphere and uh, the, the whole movement was to have from the beginning, the idea of congruence. And the congruence is about the congruence of the person with the role. And I understand that your podcasts are sort of right focused on that point. And um, we could formulate one of the paradoxes of how the therapeutic process works through that interface. You know, who am I in performing a role and who am I as a person inside the role And how does that diverge? How does the performing of the role make me incongruent? Uh, So that would be a kind of sophisticated, interesting formulation that we're using in psychotherapy. We're using our own subjectivity and our sense of ourselves um, to notice these gaps between who we are becoming in the role and who we experience ourselves to be as a person one of the downsides of the humanistic revolution, in my uh, view, is that um, we're not sufficiently psychoanalytic in conceiving of ourselves as opaque to ourselves. So when I say, who am I as a person, who am I to myself? Um, We sort of talk in the humanistic tradition as if we know. Mm. When the wiser thing, I think, is to say, I know maybe a little bit, you know, I have a little spotlight of some kind of connection with myself, but uh, let's not be too certain about this. You know, there's many aspects of myself which uh, I don't know about and which are opaque to me and which I'm curious about, you know, the, the healthy attitude, I think, curiosity uh, and also, you know, but... The, you now in the humanistic tradition now it's you know infused with a lot of narcissism we hear people say i know who i am this is myself i'm going to assert who i am so all the uncertainty goes and uh, and one of the tragedies of that kind of stance that kind of gesture of certainty of course is that you've just aborted becoming you know the more the more interesting question is what self am i becoming rather than what self am i right now so so what self am i what people say about me is that they they like well as as students they like my teaching because it's integrative and it's passionate and it's alive and it's embracing it's embracing all the different traditions one of the things that people like me uh, doing in in teaching is to translate between the jargons of the different traditions and the different approaches mm.
0: <laughs> um, i can relate to that a lot mm.
2: so because i do think the kind of integration that i'm aiming at you know when, when i try to put that into words is is not to get an eclectic pick and mix kind of integration. You know, sometimes you ask people these days, you know, what kind of psychotherapist are you? And they say, I'm integrative. And you say, what does that mean? And it says, well, I was, you know, I had this person centered training, but I'm also integrating EMDR. And then you say, well, how do you do that then? They, they come from fairly contradictory backgrounds. And, you know, um, and then typically people go very, vague and they say well i just do what's right i switch between them but i oscillate and but i sort of do what feels right mm-hmm. now that's just uh, that's just a blank check for anything and everything that's not integration uh that's just eclectic pragmatism or you know what i call porridge integration so uh, it's just all one mix and you know um so no, what i'm after is um what I call broad spectrum integration that really integrates all the traditions, all the gifts and obliviousnesses, shadow aspects of all the approaches on the assumption that um, the fragmentation of the field in the way that we find it at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st, that it reflects the fragmented psyche of its clients and practitioners. So that correspondence between the inner fragmentation and the outer fragmentation. And the outer fragmentation used to be a lot worse in the 80s. You know, it was like more like tribal warfare and nonchalant superiority to everybody else. And and that really came to an end with the formation of, you know, in the UK, with the formation of UKCP and there was lots of integration, Petrushka Clarkson made a huge seminal contribution to psychotherapy integration, which uh, which is much more evolved and refined and sophisticated in the UK than anywhere else. And that was really the spirit with which UKCP was founded as one of the main pillars of the profession. Um, so that's what I identify with. I identify with a pluralistic psychotherapeutic profession which reflects the psyche, the diversity of the psyche um, and constantly working that interface between the internal and the external. To me, that's one of the special things about the whole tradition of psychology going back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, uh, all the way to the Greeks, this kind of recognition of the... uh, the inner and the outer, the microcosm, the macrocosm, and the reflection of similar processes. And, uh, you know, what the Greeks said about the psyche is that it's deep, it's infinite, you know, it has depth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, and it has infinite diversity. And so that's the kind of idea of integration that I'm known for. That's what I'm passionate Mm -hmm. about. That's what I'm trying to model.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. I would I would go to so many paths. Um, I will. I would just take a step back because the first thing you mentioned was that what brought you to psychotherapy is pain, mm. and I'm just wondering, um, how has that pain been held, transmuted, rearranged, felt again? Um,
2: I think. And where uh, is it now? <laughs> as I implied in the first few years under the under the determined view to actively transmute it it was basically corralled and regimented and repressed and rechanneled and enacted and uh while well, all the while well, me fancying myself as working on it
1: mm-hmm. so
2: I created quite a lot of damage and havoc within myself and in my relationships under the under the higher ideal of a therapeutic process. Um, there was a lot of chaos and um, you know, before I became a psychotherapist, I was involved in kind of grassroots politics and the kind of grassroots politics that made immediate and most sense to me was a kind of non-violence kind of mahatma gandhi type of grassroots politics activism and um and that also had the inner and outer already you know there needs to be inner development that matches the outer development and how can we how can we take a kind of collective position without working away at the inner edge um so that made sense to me and um and the non-violence made sense because uh, I was full of violence. <laughs> you know, there was lots of anger and teenage frustration and repressed sexuality for all the kind of sexual liberation that we were supposedly, you know, benefiting from in the seventies, which was my teenage years. Um, I was just very lost, and uh, you know, and that was the beginning of feminism. And I was probably in one of the first men's groups in Germany that existed before I came over to the UK. Um, And there were lots of, there was lots of idealization, blindness, primitive, uh, primitive narcissism. You know, all of that was involved in seeking a psychotherapeutic solution. So those are some of the labels or words that we can wrap around the pain. Uh, plus there was being German, you know. It took me, I think, the best part of 15 years of understanding why I had to escape Germany. Um, because of the Holocaust and the denial, the emotional denial around it, you know. By the time that I was became a young adult with a political awareness, uh, the overall... Um, attitude that I perceived to be surrounding me was uh we've overcome all that we're now a healthy thriving democracy and uh you know this is far gone and uh we didn't understand anything then about transgenerational trauma or anything like that I didn't understand I hadn't I don't know whether the concept of uh second generation you know holocaust survivors both on the uh on the Jewish side, as well as on the German side. I don't know whether that existed. You know, I became a member of a dialogue, Jewish-German dialogue group, which was, I think, an initiative started by a, an Israeli professor who brought second generation German and Jewish people together. And that there was a lot of pain, a collective pain about that. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think uh, the 70s, um, were the beginnings of the narcissism epidemic, and I'm, I'm squarely in that generation. I, I, um, after I finished school, I was waiting to uh, on some procedure of being a conscientious objector, and I spent my nights reading psychanalytic books on narcissism. You know, which is quite a thing to do for an 18 year old, uh, rather than going out and partying. But I really needed to get to the bottom of it and there was lots of narcissism driving the investigation of narcissism but that was beginning to be a sociological and psycholytic concept mm. in those days and uh, you know since the 70s that's gone from bad to worse you know collectively speaking because uh, the younger generations are just so lost in in that you know collectively mm. that's
0: a very not not the narcissism, but I always kind of thought about um, the difficulty that someone who has been in Germany must have experienced. Um and actually, I recently read an article from another therapist who who is a second generation um, German woman. and i I'm from Serbia who has been also a war criminal um always being in and not really understanding how am i this when i'm actually not this kind of thing
2: Ah, yes of course Uh, that's what people say but that's one of the denials you know that that uh, of course on a rational level you could easily maintain well look all of this happened long before me my parents weren't particular perpetrators you know my my mother certainly was much more a victim of uh of fascism than than a perpetrator uh on my father's side is maybe not so clear uh, but they were poor people who uh, you know who got just swept away but they weren't certainly they weren't perpetrators or uh in any active fashion um so what have i got to do with it you know i'm just a child and that's long long gone so we really there's no notion of how transgenerational trauma, uh, guilt, and trauma on the yeah. perpetrator side and on the on the victim side uh, gets communicated, gets absorbed, gets osmosed by the children. Yes. On the Jewish side, there is. Um, you know, there is a there are psychotherapists. Uh, there's a famous book. It's called Memorial Candles, you know, where the children of uh, Holocaust survivors are like they they are identified with being the memorial candles. and in the family dynamic, they get allocated that role of we shall never forget. and so they 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 spend their lives with that identification. So there are psychological messages, there are. Uh, pre-verbal you know embodied messages that's how these identifications work from generation to generation which we didn't understand at all uh, in those days Um, but that is something that with the maturing of the psychotherapeutic profession that has become more uh, known and also I think it has seeped a little bit into the culture some kind of appreciation of that I mean I'm thinking Especially of uh, Bert Hellinger's work. That's what you know, I that's... just
0: wanted to say, actually.
2: <laughs> so I got really interested in that for some years, mm. and my my ex wife was uh, studied it, and you know we went to many uh, uh, workshops, and there was a lot of learning that happened on that level because it's a it really is a revolutionary tool for um, and methodology for gaining awareness. Yeah. of those links and how real they are and how how trapped we can feel in these transgenerational uh, identifications
1: yeah and exactly. how
2: much it takes to 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 notice them to own them and let alone work them through you know?
1: mm. yeah so do
2: I feel that some of the pain has been transmuted uh, yeah, definitely I mean mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I had the most wonderful therapists on the planet, but I stuck at it. Like most of my adult life between the ages of, I don't know, 20 something, early 20s. And uh, just recently before I left the UK, I was in some kind of therapy. I spent decades in men's groups, self-organized groups. I was busy with them and that was my life, you know, the development, unearthing things, the working things through and uh, you know they say if you spend 10000 hours at doing anything eventually you do master something and uh yeah to me it's self evident that some kind of therapeutic process can be made to work um it's maybe not what's ne- what necessarily is taught or what's out there available and uh uh but You know, some of it is just, as Jung would say, it's just the individuation process which needs a little help, you know, the thing wants to happen anyway, it's just the right environment and the right support at crucial moments, and it needs a relational container. And I think that's, we understand, or there's at least some possibility to understand that more deeply than we did then, Um, you know, in the 80s, for example, so my understanding of the process and what is required and the deep attachment and dependency Mm -hmm. that one needs to allow you know if you stay in long-term therapy for not with the same person necessarily but uh, if you are deeply investing and committing yourself to 35 years of therapy then you get to appreciate long-term attachment and then you get to appreciate dependency and putting yourself at someone's mercy which is sort of what we do when we get married or make long-term commitments. But there's something of that that manifests in therapy. And of course, it's not very fashionable. And, you know, but if you do that consistently, if you put your money where your mouth is, and um, then, yes, eventually, something breaks through all the defensive posturing and gestures and attempts and, the therapeutic denials of the very pain that you're claiming to be working on you know mm.
1: Mm. so no
2: i don't feel i don't feel possessed in the way that i did um and then of course eventually some kind of transpersonal perspective you know if you're challenging the defensive ego eventually you bump into questioning you know with, with your starting question who who am i you question what the ego is you know what is it what is the self and uh, and you realize that there are states of consciousness available to human uh, awareness that go way beyond the ego you know where the ego is a tiny little restricted identification little territory but that, uh, that's like a kind of, what is this uh, electrical component that reduces the voltage down to something manageable? So uh, once you question the defensive ego, it's fairly inevitable that you come to question the ego, the notion of the ego. Um, mm. And a broader space You know, can open out where you are just much less identified with any particular, this is me and that is not me. And, you know, there's that. Uh, I can remember the name. There's a Roman slave who was set free, who uh, is famous for the phrase "Let nothing human be alien to me." Mm. I think that's a good, that's a good principle. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm laughing, uh, not because I'm laughing at what you're saying, but because uh, it is actually. When I described myself uh, on my Instagram page, uh, mm. I actually used that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I mm. yeah I actually started realizing that I could connect to many things that I was readily rejecting. Um, yes, Um and and I don't know why the words how you be. Uh, the word softness came to mind mm. and um i don't know why because nothing that you were speaking about um um was was really related to it but i i guess i guess i was curious about how it whether this process has softened something about you
2: oh definitely 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 i mean you know the the training I was attracted to is squarely in the tradition of Wilhelm Reich, who formulated, and you know, very preciously, decades ahead of his time, with also with certain limitations, which you know, I've spent a lot of my career thinking about, that um, he basically formulated what everybody else calls a psychological problem, you know, in the 1920s of neurosis or whatever you called it at the time. Um, he formulated it in holistic terms, and he coined the notion of character armor, which is basically a defense of rigidity. It's like a carapace that, that an animal develops in order to protect the soft center. Um, and a lot of therapy in that tradition, um, certainly you know, addressing the Victorian age and repression, where the main collective issue was repression, well, you cannot repress anything in, in the sense that they were talking about it without tightening your body. You basically split your body into rigid bits and pieces, tensions, tightnesses um, that that build a kind of, like a knight in, in armor, you build an armor uh, against vulnerable softness. And that would have been in those days the the bulk of the formulation and also the bulk of what reich then proceeded to develop as a way of um, engaging with it therapeutically and so the naive conclusion the kind of polarized naive conclusion is to either crack the armor uh, which was the sledgehammer type of um, initial philosophy manifest in in the in the maybe the first generation after Willemreich. Um, and then a woman had to come along, Gerda Boysen from Norway, to come up with the idea of melting the armor, uh, which is more, more in line with the softness that we're trying to reach behind the rigidities. Uh, but these were the ideas that I really was attracted to because they made sense to me as a, a teenager. You know, because I felt like that i felt the split between and i was very confused about that in terms of gender you know what kind of man Mm. was i going to be and that uh, was
0: actually my next question so i will yeah i'm curious to hear that
2: so well you can deconstruct you know patriarchal notions of gender from a more sociological collective angle but i came at it really more well i came at it like that perceiving it in others and in my parents i perceived patriarchal dynamics which i didn't uh which i contracted against and you know intuitively uh, in a kind of pre-verbal unthought way i i knew that that wasn't right there was something not right that love wasn't flowing mm-hmm. but it's then very confusing as a man becoming a man in the late 70s, early 80s. Feminism is just beginning. Uh, what kind of man are you going to be? And there is a split You know, later than when I was more involved in the men's movement, which was a very, very precious uh, in terms of me becoming a soft man, an available man, a more rounded man. Um, that was just as important as therapy. I really can't overemphasize how precious it was to be part of that collective experience um, in deconstructing limited and rigid identities of ideas of masculinity and and becoming a more available and loving whole human being. You know that. So yeah, the softness is definitely. Uh, very precious to me, and uh, and to see softness as strength, you know. I mean, that was one of the redefinitions that uh, that happened through feminism, you know, mm-hmm. where there was, you know, we made the distinction, or feminists made the distinction, which I then bought into, it, that there is power over, and there's power with, and there's power in um, in hardness and determination, and there's power in softness. You know, so there's different kinds of power that have different purposes and different effects and different you know there's need but there's obviously a need for both
1: mm.
2: and I, I think it's that kind of thing which really men need i mean I, I have a young son who's now just a year old and uh and that's one of the places in life where the integration of a uh, you know masculine force and strength and all the traditional values with the son of softness is so badly needed you know and if i if i'm a father like that then uh, it's very evident that my purpose in life in terms of parenting doesn't start when he's three know, it's it's right there from the beginning and uh, and i make an attachment relationship with him just as his mother does you know so and it's very evident that uh, that there is a tendency in him to respond to that, you know, to have different attachments with both of us, but equally intense and equally necessary. You know, mm. I don't know whether you know, but Andrew Samuels in the UK has really been very vocal about um, how much of psychotherapy across the humanistic and psychoanalytic uh, traditions has become mother oriented and kind of dyadic you know and lost Mm. also in some kind of reduction of therapy to a reparative notion of you know the good mother the therapist being the better mother who makes up for the bad mother and and this is a really limited notion um
1: yeah yes i mean i
2: I did I, i there's a whole journey there in terms of rigidity and hardness and the kind of compulsion to approximate an idea of masculinity you know i was really compelled by that all down into kind of sexual fantasy of what what it was to be a man and what kind of erection i was supposed to be having and all these kind of patriarchal notions that i was completely persuaded by you know and and gripped by and felt inadequate to so there was a lot of development that needed to happen, and uh, like I said, a lot of that happened within the men's movement more than it happened in therapy. Although okay. therapy helped a lot, because you know I was in some kind of embodied therapy. That in those days, body psychotherapy was very blind and very one-sided. Focused on on release of pent up emotion, like a pressure cooker, you know. Mm. And that that's what we thought good therapy consisted of in contrast to what we reduced psychoanalysis to, which was just a kind of mental head trip of interpretation, you know. Mm.
0: Again, many choice points in therapeutic language, but um, two things that I I wanted to share part of my process uh, in terms of thinking about um, patriarchy. I mean, I am coming from a very patriarchal mm. country it took me years 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 <laughs> to to realize that first and then to...
2: you can't possibly have had that many years yeah. you're not that old yeah I'm not uh, but exactly. it's still a
0: lot 30 years <laughs> is still a lot of years so <laughs>
2: well, we need to dedicate a lot of yeah. our lives to that uh, yeah. to that collective uh, structure yes i understand okay
0: but but there was always a part of me living there um, That they had quite a lot of compassion for men knowing yeah. how much that's impacting them as well as that yeah
2: very and, important
0: and conceptually i was thinking that patriarchy is an emergent phenomenon of a trauma response that mm-hmm. somehow we have um uh, so I feel because of the not cyclical nature of men, which is like they they do not have a cycle, they have a much bigger capacity for repression because I know for my for my like want it or not, there will be a moment where my cycle will face me with something i I yes, want. Won- I won't be able to repress it, and I feel because there was much more of a of a dyadic split that repression was transgenerationally brought to a point of patriarchy, mm-hmm. where where we where where there was kind of a split within men where where they kind of disowned their soft feeling nature
2: nature,
0: exactly and and that's where i guess women have become a threat because they like no matter how much we want to do it inevitably it will it will show somewhere that's
2: a blessing that's a blessing i mean if you
0: exactly
2: if if you subscribe to any i mean you know there's major rifts there in feminism about social construction versus biological essentialism and uh you know these are really difficult issues to think through in a nuanced way um which are partly because we're patriarchally brainwashed into dichotomy yes.
1: yeah uh, exactly
2: <laughs> so a lot of yeah. the time trying to kind of uh, put out a fire by adding more fuel so um the origins of patriarchy are an interesting question mm. And did does it did it have a meaningful or did it have a traumatic origin? You know, I spent quite a few years trying to get trying to do my own private research into uh, feminist archaeology and the origins of patriarchy and pre-patriarchal. What we what we. This was quite a few years ago, but what we knew then about pre-patriarchal cultures, and I read everything by Joseph Campbell, and I was really into the mythology and the the kind of consciousness that we can infer was present in matriarchal times, uh, then as the dominant form of human collective consciousness um and that was part of the men's movement because i was really there was a lot of interest in that and you know we were becoming acquainted and people like robert bligh helped us with mythology and i uh, really
0: love his books yeah
2: yeah so i mean well you love his books you would have loved him in person uh, you would have yeah. to have him
0: i watched i watched i mean the only thing i could do is to watch some videos um yeah um, and I really felt like it was so beautiful to watch. Yeah, his embodiedness—it w- it was beautiful. Because I—I yeah. I, I found him out by reading Marion Woodman, which yes, yeah, yeah, they and worked so, together. I mean, those, yeah. were,
2: those were precious times, you know, in the 1980s when they were there in the in San Francisco, you know, pioneering the importance of these things and mythology and fa- and fairy tales and. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can remember attending weekends on roadblock coming over to the UK and uh, with his wife and telling Russian fairy tales um, in the most embodied and funny and inspiring way that was so intricately relevant to our psychology and our therapeutic process. So that's why, you know, I say that well, those were precious years. And these days, you know, many, especially young men, do not benefit from that. They sort of, you know, are the sort of second generation maybe of being influenced by feminism. And they take many, they absorb many of the culturally available ideas, which, you know, include the denigration of masculinity and, you know, kind of lack of appreciation of Benign masculinity. So they absorb that, but they have no place to process that. And there's, you know, eventually the men's movement inevitably evolved to a point where we really began to understand traditional social ways of uh, creating masculinity through initiation. And it was very obvious that as men, we lacked that. You know, there was nothing equivalent short of you know getting your driving license or something there's really nothing equivalent to the to the torturous deep profound psychological process that was the taken for granted reality in most traditional societies and we don't have anything equivalent and how can you turn from a child from a boy into into an adult male member of the of the community unless some considerable internal transformation takes place you know and Rob like obviously writes and you know, his amazing the main book is about the journey of uh, you know i'm i'm john um and the journey of the evolving uh, male psyche and and how it needs softness and the road of the ashes to uh, eventually get anywhere you know after you've messed up repeatedly c- catastrophically you know yeah so yeah, I mean, I can identify deeply with that story and how he uh, makes that accessible and interprets that and and makes that relevant to modern masculinity. Definitely.
0: Mm. But in in along those lines, what I always find very curious, I mean, because you know, as as scientists, like or let's say uh, a person that uses classification as major way of understanding reality. Um, what I always find difficult is we in science whenever we make classifications and we really love to fit the world within those within those categories and then where everything goes to hell is there is one species where we can't put it in any category and oh, suddenly good. you know and then suddenly we need to put it somewhere else and suddenly that species makes us kind of rethink the whole system of how we categorize and yeah. and to be honest what i'm feeling it's happening now especially yeah. because I, I follow a lot of uh, really interesting and inspiring lgbtq and trans people is that they are suddenly the category which we cannot fit into that old system and we suddenly need to rethink how we have even started categorizing these things.
2: Yes, yes, yes. The logic of the, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I to mean, be honest,
2: is... yeah, go on.
0: Sorry. And and to be honest, that made me, because again, I, I feel like Serbia is like, 50 60 years back into you know we need some time to catch up so for me it was really easy to identify with Miriam woodman with robert bly but because that is my generation it sounds horrible but it is somehow the generation i grew up in intersubjectively (laughs) um and then i'm thinking now when i'm here when i see how much effort is put into really understanding the idiosyncrasies of people, I'm starting to realize, maybe we are using these categories as places of power, but what if they're as idiosyncratic in some ways as many others? And at the end, it is about understanding the idiosyncrasy of every person and not necessarily making a generalized idea of what is masculinity or femininity but rather that what is,
2: having... Hang what is it there, there, there was just a uh-huh. little gap i think the internet yeah. program can you say the last thing again
0: so the last thing is like how what is it for me rather than making a generalized idea of what it should mm-hmm. be and kind of because inevitably that will be a projection <laughs> And so I'm always, I'm sitting with in this day and age, uh, the importance of having these categories, although I think there is an importance to heal pieces of ourselves, but is that healing of our masculinity or femininity, or is that healing of different pieces of who we are that are not necessarily within that identity? So I don't know if if my question makes sense, but...
2: Uh, Sort of. Um, Well, it's probably both. And generally speaking, and and this is relevant to lots of dichotomies, you know, because the patriarchal constructions of gender are not the only dichotomy we're struggling with um, in psychotherapy. Also, Um, yeah. Sometimes I don't know whether you've seen this, but there was a phase where I was talking about psychotherapy itself as a discipline suffering from a birth trauma
1: Mm. (laughs) because it was
2: born uh, because it was born in the late 19th century and if there's any phase in human history where you might not want to be born you could say it's the 19th late 19th century because really the epitome of positivism and you know reductionism and materialism was at its height Um, and dualistic thinking um, was really rampant and that was the zeitgeist of when psychotherapy was born it was also the zeitgeist when genetics was born you know there were quite a few disciplines that were born at that time and they suffer the structures the assumptions the dualistic assumptions of that time, because they, they these dualistic assumptions have, have, uh, have hamstrung these disciplines for the best part of a hundred years. And yes, you know those dualistic classifications, they need to break down. Hopefully, we will find that one species that uh, escapes, uh, because these classifications are utterly artificial,
1: mm-hmm.
2: left brain impositions. I don't think classification itself is the problem because there is there's other classifications that can arise more right brain. You know, there's the right. It's not as if the right brain doesn't do any any distinction. It just has a different process of coming to distinctions. And uh, when you were talking there about being a scientist and the and the and we love to classify and where you're sort of critiquing uh, some aspects of scientific methodology. Um, you know the thing that is needed to complement one thing not maybe the thing the one thing that's needed to complement it is what james hillman talks about is about how the imaginative the what he calls the poetic basis of mind mm, which is not God. the right brain
0: that's lovely yeah
2: but because before there is rational thought there is imagination there's fantasy mm. there is a dream there's a dreaming process and rational left brain thinking is only an elaboration of that primary mat, the prima materia of the mind. Mm. Um, and then, of course, what we've realized with, with the, the 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 decade of neuroscience and trauma therapies, um, and like somebody like Alan Shaw is belatedly very explicit about it. He spent most of his life as a neuroscientist belaboring. The imbalance of psychoanalysis, especially towards the left brain, and how to include right brain and the right brain to right brain attunement, which makes it intersubjective. But then belatedly, I think since the last five years, I saw him in 2017, I think, uh, he was making the shift to the brain stem. You know, there's something deeper than the left brain and right brain dichotomy. And um and we know that again with the left brain right brain dichotomy we're approaching dualism through dualistic thinking and the person who's probably done more to deconstruct the fallacies of that is ian McGilchrist, who's written about you know the the master yeah. and,
0: his... and his emissary yeah.
2: so so it tells us something about the brain stem being even deeper so if we wanted to hu- over, hugely oversimplify we could say there is left brain classification. There is a right brain imaginative process, um, which lives in images and the images of the dream world, um, and that that in itself, in turn, is rooted in the primitive brain, and the primitive brain is rooted in the body. Um, so this is this is what the Reichian kind of holistic embodied intuition was all along. Um, which is a which is what in trauma therapy we now call the bottom up, you know, yeah. sensation first, imagination, then thinking. You know, and in the 70s we used to just say feel first, think later. You know, you want to feel fully first, feel your subjective experience with all the feelings and reactions and all the embodied uh, phenomena that are involved, and then you're in a good position to think left brain because then you've got all the information you're not stuck in some kind of characterological defense or denial or repression you've got access to all the phenomena of the experience and then you can think yeah. but don't think prematurely in, in a defensive structure in a dualistic defensive structure because that kind of thinking only obstructs you into disembodiment
0: yeah <laughs> i'm laughing because i'm like yes 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 <laughs> because uh, i i um uh, uh oh so many things i just wrote something and i was like do i go and get it or not um but i'll try to paraphrase make it up yeah I probably won't be able to be really good at it but there's something about um uh that a lot of what we know now that is real in the in in the world has started in in the right brain or in imagination and then it became reality through the left brain and i'm thinking of of how i work sometimes is we think of a model or an idea and then we test it <laughs> rather than we test it and then we think i mean some it's some it's different sometimes it's one sometimes yeah, but it's the if, other, if but you're really
2: it, you're really you know Using your corpus callosum there between the two hemispheres, um, the model that you think of you think you think of first mm-hmm. was never a left brain model in the first place. It was always already embedded in an imaginative process of which yeah. it is an elaboration. So, yeah. the idea that there is abstract thinking and abstract methodology, you know, is a bit like Santa Claus. It never existed, you know, because there never was a disembodied mind. Yeah, um, and there never was a, a left brain process that wasn't embedded or emergent from some kind of uh, dreaming process, imaginative dreaming process, because in reality. They are a paradoxical integrating emergence system uh, where the distinctions we're making are constantly undermined by a paradoxical process that that, uh, transcends the distinctions. I mean, you could say it in terms of dialectic, you know. So whatever the mind thinks it has caught as a kind of thesis, uh, antithesis, yeah. dichotomous description of reality, by the time you've done that, uh, the synthesis is already on its way because it was always already implied in the in the dichotomous distinction in the first place. Yeah. So it's really important to be. You know, this is, I think, one of the. They don't usually talk like that, but the body people, body-oriented somatic psychology people, this is something they know in experience. Yes. You know? Like I said, feel first, think later, and that that uh, thinking works like that. You know. Uh and that means there is you know we can make a dichotomous formulation that there is embodied thinking thinking from within the body and imaginative process in a kind of connecting emergent way, or there is some kind of thinking that appears to arise from within a structure that's already conflicted and fragmenting and um defensive
1: mm-hmm
0: i mean my 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 thinking, probably very simple around that, was I mean, I had that experience I mean, I had that experientially of my experience of my own neurotic process, which is yes. <laughs> which is basically which is basically that moment when my brain is using so much energy, like my prefrontal cortex, to as you say, think of the reality as imagined reality and then fit everything within which takes a lot of energy because then it has to refuse all these sensory inputs that like are potentially changing that idea of reality uh which you can call defenses of however you want to call it whereas now my in experience is "Mm, let me see what information i have and then I can use this to integrate it, process it, and I mean, if I'm speaking, that's happening as, that that that's not happening as uh, as slow as I'm saying it now, but but I think that's 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 where I that's why I feel what if what psychotherapy did to me (laughs) um, was basically
2: and, and and for that you had to choose a particular experientially you know near experience near psychotherapy like a stout, which is all about yeah. you know being in the experience first you know like where pearls would say you know lose your head come to your senses, senses and, you exactly
0: know, like
2: yeah. that. um yeah. so but it's important to recognize that of course that what you diagnose as your prior habit of using the mind didn't fall out of the sky or you didn't choose but you found yourself um, because the origins of your mind um, are not in awareness the origins of your mind are in some kind of relational context um, where some kind of woundedness and defensiveness some kind of characterological conflictual habit is already structured into your being which you don't have any choice about and so now your mind is just a sort of epiphenomenon of that having happened um so you know that's what of course in postmodernism we say well we don't develop a mind we find ourselves thrown into a situation where we we have a mind and as soon as we have a mind uh, we find ourselves having a particular kind of mind it's already got the collective in it through language, you know, so already structured by language. You know, one of the obvious things to remind ourselves is that the Inuit have uh, 80 words for snow and we just have one, you know. Mm -hmm. So clearly the experiential reality is a lot more refined and diverse than it's just, you know, being streamlined and, and kind of reduced through the mind that we have somehow acquired from our social environment. And it has transgenerational true mind. So you're not just arbitrarily having a disconnected disembodied left brain mind because it's fun to operate like that. You know, it is really just you discover that you are lumbered with a mind like that because you're not aware of its origins and certainly not its transgenerational origins, but you get your mind, you inherit your mind from the social environment that, and this is of course, this is something that we understand much better now through intersubjectivity and infant research and people like Colvin Trevarden and all, you know, the neuroscience studies um, that really give, that really put postmodernism into a biological, anatomical, physiological, biochemistry Mm -hmm. reality that we understand intersubjectivity as a kind of embodied process now um and that means that the mind we end up with is not really my mind you know my the, it's a mind that was given to me through early development
0: yeah yeah i mean to me that that makes a lot of sense as in like even if i think about the brain development is that
1: yeah.
0: we I you said inherit the mind and i thought also inherit the story um mm-hmm. of the mind of the body because uh it's i think what psychotherapy changes not necessarily the mind is the story um that because if i think of like nick totten's sensation um uh what was the next one the sensation and then emotion and then fantasy and then um thought or whatever um I
1: always, of mind. yeah
0: yeah and i always i always think of like um we when we were when we are smaller that that part that can make meaning is much less developed so the the meaning is kind of made very primitive as in like it's it's messages that we hear but it's messages that are somehow when i'm was in my therapy process i had to decipher like Mm -hmm. "Mm, this is saying this and then this is saying this and and like, what is my experience of myself, and and then I feel like the, the the process of therapy is is really about like almost putting a hand in between those layers, and saying yeah yeah
2: yeah 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 and opening up and and, and looking at, and exploring the the various translations there from layer to layer definitely
0: exactly exactly I was I was
2: I was I was flinching a little bit because mm-hmm. what I thought i heard i'm not sure about this some implication that meaning is made through the mind this is a very common mm. i don't know whether you said that but uh um
0: there there is there is that in in what i said yes yeah yeah
2: um and this is uh, when you push talking therapists hard enough mm. as to what they're doing and how it's supposed to be working they Often go towards that, you know, that therapy is essentially a meaning making procedure on the assumption that sophisticated meaning, i.e., more enlightened meaning rather than child like mm-hmm. deluded or mythological meaning, magical thinking meaning, um, is being transformed uh, by the mind. Mm-hmm. And that's how talking therapy works amongst humans. So there's a heavy bias in that story I hear yeah story Mm -hmm. towards meaning being made through the mind Mm
1: -hmm. that's
2: to me that's a dualistic disembodied trap Mm -hmm. lots of meaning gets made pre-verbally pre-reflexively through the body and if you if you if you want to die at the end of your life in a me with a sense of meaning and purpose Uh, It's not mainly the meaning that your mind has made that stays with you there. There's a whole accumulation of meaning made through the body and through the imagination. As you said, there's a whole, you know, there's an argument for saying that really the in terms of a more kind of classical going back to the Greeks kind of formulation that the psyche. Is a kind of third realm which Freud also uh, talked about. Is a third realm between the body and the mind, like a mysterious, elusive realm um, that is a third realm between the not reducible to the body or the mind, um, and that really it lives from images. You know that's what mm-hmm. James Hillman would say. He would talk about image, the image making uh you know like i said the poetic basis of mind is, is dreaming and imaging and that that is inseparable the, arguably the richest meaning of our lives comes from that realm like which is symbolic like the left brain ultimately works with signs you know this sign means this means that you know it's mm-hmm. an equivalence on one particular level there's a sign pointing to this is the road to the town center Mm. symbol as jung worked with it and is not a sign because it can resonate on all the levels it can make meaning on many levels Um, and so arguably human the human sense of meaning depends more on those processes and on the imagination and some kind of mythological oriented operation of fantasy than on left brain rational meaning making mm. because it is also still more connected to the body so yeah. with the imagination you you often not necessarily but you often get the body still coming along In the, yeah. like we still talked about the cycle, the women's cycle and so
0: on but there, there's something there where which I am um... It's like there is like a duality, the mind-body split. And, and if I think of mind, um, yes. I'm finding it difficult to separate it. I As if like body is mind. Um, I was like, I don't see the mind here, if it makes sense. It's like when I close my eyes, like if I think of even the nervous system image, Um, but there are other images but even if I think of that one it's not like you have your brain and like the central nervous system and then separately from that is the rest of the autonomous nervous system but it's more like that's a whole and it is pragmatic to to do the to do the mind body thing but I I feel like
2: it's it's completely misleading, as you said, as you just said, implied to locate the mind in one part of the nervous system uh, and to call the other thing the body as if it doesn't (laughs)
0: exactly
2: utterly is utter rot. It's it's one of the most misleading stories about if you want to get into reality, that's one of the most misleading constructions ever.
1: Yeah, I I mean.
2: The way you're talking, these are the kinds of paradoxical formulations of the heart problem, the mind-body problem that we arrive at when we've had some process, some emotional process that deconstructs the split which means, which Reich said all along, that the split we can talk about the split and we care about it and we work away at it we engage with it because we intuit that The split is rooted in a deeper unity. And once you experience that as a a body-mind holistic experience, you then have the grounds, the the, the immediate evidence uh, to say the body-mind split is a very misleading story. It's a very misleading uh, aberration, um, which is understandable and has you know, benefits derive from it. Some, you know, some things about reality get revealed through the body-mind split. So it's not entirely a bad thing. There is something valid about this embodiment and something interesting and creative about this embodiment. So I'm not in line with the people, you know, the body psychotherapists who worship this embodiment. I think, you know, to me, what I call the embodiment-disembodiment process is a paradoxical process between... The so-called mind and the so-called body but what becomes available once you have a bit more of a of a of a of a felt experience that transcends the split you can then think to deconstruct it exactly in the way that you were beginning to do you know you can then think well is the mind in the brain and you know and so yeah in modern neuroscience i mean i organized a conference you might have seen like a few years ago i can't remember 2015 or something with a philosopher called Sean Gallagher. Um, Who has really been working away from the whole realm of philosophy at that kind of, well, uh, at the kind of dualism, and most most philosophers and neuroscientists do on the abstract level do not subscribe to that kind of Cartesian dualism anymore. So then you come up. I mean, he comes up with what he calls uh, cognition as four E, which is embedded, embodied extended and inactive which means the mind is not in the brain it's in the body it is not located in an individual it's located between individuals it's uh it's not to do with reflection mainly it 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 it, it, it uh arises through enactment through action through you now which is really relevant to psychoanalysis which traditionally has a whole kind of horror of action, you know, because action is always bad, you know, acting in, acting out, these are bad things. When actually the mind, uh, in order to develop, it requires action. So that's the inactive aspect of cognition. And then you've got extended, it's not restricted to your skin. So these are these deconstructions of the dualistic uh, conception uh, become available. Once people glimpsed in themselves that a deeper wholeness uh, has always existed, never disappeared, and is uh, perfectly available.
0: Hmm. The, the interesting thing is, as as I'm listening to you, I feel like I'm I feel I'm really connected, and I and I feel like there is an implicit understanding between us. And then I'm imagining, yes. and then and then I'm imagining someone on the outside listening, and thinking i'm in pain <laughs> and how is this what you're telling relevant. now relevant to to what well, i'm experiencing so, now so
2: let's 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 leave the abstract realms i mean these are thought processes that become available on the basis of a more embodied unified or you know, wholesome process um um the there's nobody that can be convinced of any of what we're saying as some kind of having any kind of emotionally significant reality unless they have a bit of the experience they can sort of maybe infer and you know but yes they need the experience first you know it's like uh, you have to have uh, you have to have an experience of you know in reichen language you have to have an experience of a good orgasm Rather than just a kind of discharge, you have to have an experience of making love uh, before you can appreciate what sexuality is. So um, that wholesome experience uh, precedes any clear thinking about these things. So what we can we can let's let's go less abstract, if you want. I mean, let's go more to you
1: know. If you
2: have listeners who say, you know, how the hell is this relevant? Because I am in pain, or You know, I want to develop my potential or I feel I'm living in a prison or, uh, you know, my relationships go wrong because I always end up in some kind of dualistic gender stereotypes or, you know, this is this is what human suffering consists of. This is how people, this is the presenting issues that people bring to therapy. We can talk more about that, how it's relevant to that. We can take that Mm -hmm. direction of travel if you want.
1: Mm -hmm. i I don't
2: know i don't know your audience you see yeah
0: i mean the thing is uh, is, i think my audience ranges from from people that are scientists or therapists to people that actually really are interested in in um in how can i do anything to help myself um but i think there is a part of me that which thinks i am my audience as well as in like you know there there are parts of me which are uh which have been in the place of a um client <laughs> and then you know parts of me who were always interested in that process because i feel like i feel like i was always in it i didn't feel like therapy somehow um and so it, that's why it feels very intuitive to listen. And to know, I mean, I don't know, what, as you were speaking about the duality, I just remembered of Siddhartha and um, and Hesse. And just there's one sentence that towards the end, when he had the experience, actually, which is what I really like about the book, He he couldn't have that knowledge without actually going through all the st- stipulations of life and experiencing really the pain. And then coming back to a point of, being like whenever I say a word, I also mean the exact opposite. I create the split by by saying something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And 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 also I recently read and you spoke about that in the beginning a little bit um, about cultivating uncertainty and and as we are cultivating uncertainty, we are cultivating the becoming rather than the fixedness of who you are. Um, and and also there is like there is an article that I'm reading that don't try mm. to be self confident but cultivate exactly this the feeling of being able to hold uncertainty and paradox, mm. and I guess, I guess to me um, and this is what what comes again back into how difficult it is to really explain like what is it that we are doing, and I ca- I think I'm slightly using your help here to be able to Thanks. to bring this more um to people because again it's very easy to have that resonance with with someone who has gone through yeah, the yeah. Process.
2: So, i mean one thing yeah i understand no i think that's totally valid um years ago i was accused as a teacher of overcomplicating things being too intellectual um leaving people behind, some of the students. I, you know, I used to have, you know, people used to accuse me that I had favorite students who would kind of wrap their head around the way I was formulating things, and then there would be people left behind. And I think some of that criticism was very accurate and valid. And I have really made major efforts um, as I've got softer rather than you know. And, and less narcissistically invested in appearing clever um, in really just reaching people and making it uh, uh, accessible, both both for therapists and training, but also for uh, the general public being interested in getting some help from something like counseling or psychotherapy and, and how to talk about it in ordinary, simple language. So yes, I think there's a danger that you and I can be riffing on those really intricate levels Um, so one of the things i um, i remind therapists when we have conversations like this is to remember yourself 10 years ago or 15 years ago more at the beginning of a process i mean you said you've always had some kind of investigative mind like that but you know remember your your conception of therapy from 10 or 15 years ago and how you imagined therapy then and how you conceived of therapy then and how you constructed it and thought what it was and what it would give you and what it would require of a client and what it would require of a therapist um you and i are talking from like was very explicit we said oh well we both have some experience of body mind integration you know it's one word to put right? like it is po- perfectly possible to experience the body mind as a wholesome paradox which is full of joy and vitality and uncertainty and that's good that, that's that's better than how i experienced my mind and my body like 20 30 years ago i wouldn't exchange it for the world you know like i think there's a there's an indian poetess who says a. Uh, you know, I felt the swaying of the elephant's shoulders now you want me to go back to riding on donkey you must be joking. So I, I don't want to go back to that this is much better, mm-hmm. um, even if it's still full of pain. I'm not going to go back to that um, given half a chance and uh, you know some of these things I'm never going to go back to because you know finished I'm I'm done with with that that uh, that that there is particular kinds of suffering I'm done with for this lifetime so. Um, So that is the effect of some kind of therapeutic process, which really transcends pain in a way that doesn't just kind of, you know, a lot of a lot of one of the things I teach is about different kinds of change and different therapists and therapies pursuing different kinds of change. And in an overall evolutionary uh, conception, Wilbur has distinguished two phases of evolution. And there is, there's change through translation, he talked about, and there's change through transformation. And for our purposes as therapists, I wanted to make the whole thing more practical. And I've added third, which is where a lot of therapy happens, which is change through contradiction. Uh, where you're counteracting negative patterns many of the people who are interested in getting extracting something from our conversation about their own journey and about their suffering and about how do i live and what's a better life and um, the pain compels us into a mode of change by contradiction you know maybe in my teens I was compelled by the pain. I didn't even know that life could be any different, and I sort of accepted it. But then there was a phase where I thought, "This sucks. You know, this is not right. Uh, something different should be available." Uh, I'm caught in negative patterns. I'm creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of negative misery. <clears throat> And I can blame the outer world. But actually, there comes a point of some maturity where I realize, well, actually, I, I, I'm part of creating this. Um, that is because I'm trapped in negative patterns, self-sabotaging patterns, whatever. Um, and then I want psychotherapy to help me contradict those. So the obvious one would be addiction. I'm trapped in addiction. I realize addiction is a de- destructive process. You know, at the far end, you know, when I'm being blunt about it, uh, um, I'd say, you know, the addictive mind walks over corpses because they, they are they're married to the substance rather than to people. And the people are collateral damage. Um, so when somebody recognizes that and they recognizes their habitual pattern of addiction or what a compulsion or whatever they have is destructive to love, essentially, um, then they want therapy to help them contradict the negative pattern. They want to challenge and deconstruct uh, the negative pattern. And a lot of therapy quite validly meets that and supplies that. But at some point you realize you can spend the rest of your life in contradiction. Because to some extent, the, the therapeutic mode of contradiction depends on the very defensive ego that was causes the was part of the problem in the first place you know which is why einstein says you can't solve a problem with the kind of consciousness that created it so the mode of contradiction is ultimately very limited because it's still trapped in a dichotomous logic so which is why i use the phrase like you know it's like trying to put out a fire by adding more fuel now some contradiction you know when you're an addict you need a time of sobriety you need to contradict, but a deep passion and intuition of all psychotherapy all along is that there is another mode of transformation where you don't change the problem. You don't, I mean, in in some languages, people would say you don't do violence to the wounded, habitual, messed up part of you. You don't change that. You don't behavior modificate that you don't. You don't diagnose it into death and then do something different. You need to transform it where something else becomes a bigger reality, more important. Like Jung used to say, you know, we don't change our problems. We just grow into more important ones. They become irrelevant. You know, you don't you don't resolve things. That's a bit extreme. I think, you know, we do resolve things. Um, But yeah, so there's that mode of contradiction um, where the old self is being fought against because indeed something needs to die. Something needs to be got rid of. Something needs to be fought against. Some is bad. There's bad shit happening, man, in the world, as they would say. So you need to fight against it. But in fighting against it, you also perpetuate. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, Sorry, just, just, just one second there. I think um, uh, there was one it's it's not so close but I feel it's relevant I watched a documentary on Osho and there was a sentence which really strongly like is is ringing in me now which is choose your enemies because their weapons might become yours Mm -hmm. and I I think what you just what you are just saying is is basically somewhat I don't know why Uh, somehow sounds very much like that Sorry, you can continue, but <laughs> it's just felt like well, mean, it's, it's,
2: it's a useful lens to investigate the field of psychotherapy. And I mean, for people who choose a therapist or choose a kind of therapy and they, that dilemma of where am I going to go? You know, there's a whole bazaar on the Internet, you know, infinite number of now, I don't know, 500 different approaches and so many different therapists. And how do I know I'm not going to waste my time? Um well, as important as contradiction is as a therapeutic mode of change, it is limited. And if I was a, if I were to, to give advice to a client, and I haven't clearly defined it, and we haven't agreed what the different modes are, and you know how to recognize them, but um, I would want a therapist who's had their own experience of change by translation, change by by contradiction, change by transformation. I want them to have, unlike the therapists I was referring to earlier, where they said, I'm a fraud because my own therapy, I don't feel it's ever worked. So that's like saying, well, transformation has never occurred. I've been beavering away with this in contradiction, trying to get make a better person, you know, improve myself. Well, there is no self-improvement with all the self-help under the sun there is no self-improvement unless first you diagnose yourself as defective and faulty you know why would you improve yourself you know like picasso used to say i don't develop i am you know because the idea of development even is like i have to get better i have to improve no you don't have to improve you're perfect as you are your improvement uh self-improvement is uh is an endless uh, torturous uh, ordeal at the end so no there needs to be some of that but uh, i would want a therapist who has experienced transformation because deep down transformation the secret is of course that it wants to happen anyway you know unless we unless we fix things with our rigidities transformation is already underway you know it's just We're just very, you know, occasionally we get very good at blocking it, but uh, so I would want a therapist who has experienced and can embrace all of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. lots of people in the internet bazaar are promising transformation, you know, in three sessions and, you know, rewriting your script and, 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 you know, I mean, there's there's no end to what people are promising, but, uh, you know, what, I want to invest my money to something that actually delivers and that tends to be a more you know painstaking organic emergent process rather than some kind of violent forced you know change which is usually just jumping from the frying pan into the fire so um i would want a therapist who has their own experience of it and has a presence and an attitude and the capacity to do justice to all of that who's not overly invested uh, who doesn't appear to be dogmatic about a particular kind of therapy, who, who seems able to, to evolve a therapy with me based on who they experience me as. You know? So that would be integrative. I would want somebody who can draw from the whole wisdom, you know, 100 odd years of wisdom of psychotherapy with all its gifts and creativities and, you know, blindnesses, um i would want a therapist like that um and who doesn't feed my own preconception rigid preconceptions of what it has to achieve you know ideally like when i do assessments like i, I talked talk, talk to you and i talked about this project that i was part of uh, initiating and founding in 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 oxford before i left the uk um You know, we were thinking a lot about initial meetings between clients and therapists and especially when you assess clients with a view to referring them to not so experienced practitioners, you know, how do you make a match? How do you uh, facilitate towards a match between client and therapist where even a fairly inexperienced therapist can have uh, a good effect? Can have a good outcome and um so that kind of matching of of client and therapist uh you know it's really crucial to but what are the parameters by which we we organize that matching so very often as the assessor in a first assess supposed assessment meeting i would be very interested in the client's preconceptions about therapy what it does what it is what it requires of them because a lot of the time uh, in simple terms we could say the client's version of the problem of themselves as a problem the client's story maybe you might say the client's story of how of the problem and how they are a problem is part of the problem Mm. And also the client's version of the supposed therapeutic solution is also part of the problem because they are extrapolating the solution through their known experience of the problem. So then you do end up with some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, which adds more fuel to the fire. So in order to make therapy more, uh, open it out more initially into some hopefully productive uncertainty, for the assessor to really investigate the client's preconception of what therapy is and what the therapist should be doing and what they should be doing and then you find there's all kinds of violent assumptions that people are making as if you know the only way that they can change their entrenched habits is with a crowbar you know Mm -hmm. so that's not ideally we talked about softness at the beginning you no, know, that's not really ultimately how transformation works. You know, it cannot be forced or manufactured with a crowbar and force. You know. hmm. I
0: yeah. Yeah. I I'm just I'm I'm staying with that softness even in that initial meeting, and I'm just thinking. Um, we we talked about. Um, a lot of knowledge and heavy things and I'm also thinking about how mm. for you and well no no uh for me this actually comes from the softness um definitely um and it feels but like not only
2: not only it comes from softness it comes from hardness yeah also it comes from being available to be soft but mm. being able to be uncompromising and hard you know really at at the root of it why being soft with people is not in itself therapeutic because people are so entrenched in being hard on themselves you know you would struggle as a therapist to be as hard on anybody as they are on themselves you would struggle to do as much violence to them as they are doing to themselves That's the the beginning of, of, of a psychological perspective that we fully realize how much pain and suffering is constantly recreated in the psyche by people's taken for granted identity and attitude and who they take themselves to be. Well, that's a violent process in many, many, you know, for many people. It's a trauma. To, the way people relate to themselves is a reenactment of the trauma. Yeah. And as a therapist, you mustn't be too soft because from within, the person just thinks, oh, there's another kind of soppy little empathic kind of goody goody who's kind of dripping with pity and empathy. How is that going to do? Make a blind bit of difference. How is that going to dent my entrenched pattern? Mm. So they want you to be potent, and they want you to be uh, impactful, and they want you to be able to be hard and precise, and they want you to, you know, have the equivalent of a scalpel when it comes mm. to their own shaming and violence to themselves. You know, so, so softness is a is a nice outcome that you and I appreciate. But in most people's reality, softness is not a high priority. Yeah. Not at the beginning of the process. Maybe later on, they they discover quite unexpectedly that uh, softness has all of all kinds of strengths and benefits. But mm-hmm. uh, to many people, you know, they they have utter contempt for softness. Yeah. You know, and if you are being empathic, this happens in supervision all the time. Therapists come and say. Oh, I was I was so empathizing with their traumatized self, and you know there was so much suffering and uh, and uh, and uh, you know I was I was uh, reflecting uh, the pain I was perceiving and 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 I said, well, what happened next? Well, the client reacted with utter contempt. why you're empathic with an evil person like me, you know? I, I i'm a bastard i I'm, or I'm, I'm i'm traumatized i'm a victim you know and and i'm never i don't want to stay a victim i want therapy to make me strong so don't empathize with that victim creature i want to annihilate that within myself i think good therapy is if you can get rid of that little sucker for me you know i want to i want to, i want to annihilate that they think therapy is about uh, eliminating the softness not about integrating it you can't talk to them about oh it's a good idea to be so
0: yeah that that is uh <laughs> so many i was that client obviously uh, okay. but, uh, uh but as we all probably were uh but actually yeah that's exactly what you're speaking i i've there are so many things uh kind of coming in here now because i was recently coming out of a psychodrama where i was the psychopath who was trying to kill the soft part exactly. the, That's the,
1: what I'm the, talking about.
0: it was it was really interesting to to be in that role um it's more than
1: interesting i think interesting yeah. is an understatement. It's
0: yeah, exactly exactly uh, i mean i'm still sitting with it and it's going to take yeah. some time to process Very. that
2: yes Uh, when when you discover that you know many people they think the world is doing these things to them but when they discover that there's an internal process that's mm -hmm. quite scary that that uncertainty you know it really kicks in when you feel that that you really have not just the potential to be that but in relation to yourself that you are harder than you would be anybody else you know that many people have that and uh, yeah, that's that's where psychology, the inner world, becomes much more important than uh, you know outer change or behavior modification or communication training or all the kind of ways in which we which we try to change our behavior on the outside.
1: You know,
2: that's really where where in the long term for transformation to occur, it needs to be from the inside out. We need to get to the inside. You know, we need to get to the, as they say in German, the Schweinehund inside. You know, the mm. the persecutor inside.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah. In in relation to that, mm. it's so important the therapist to be able to embody that persecutor and not be afraid of that strength that that has, because I've noticed, um, I've noticed, I'm only able to speak about this obviously because because i i've I've done all of these things but um i've noticed how i was cutting off myself of my aggression uh, and being in the soft space but not authentically but almost like a defense mechanism Um,
1: uh,
0: because that is what it worked um and then now i'm I, I've I've read really interesting article of being, are you a conflict avoidant therapist and more like, how do we use conflict in a productive way? How can we yes. stay, stay in the fire as therapists? Yes. And also, I was look, looking, um, I watched the Goodwill Hunting. Um, I don't know if you know the movie but there was
2: I, I, I must have watched it but i can't quite remember it so now, it's
0: but... it's basically robin Williams is a therapist mm. to a young man who has been abused in his family and this comes out The in the introjected abuser comes out as as an abuser and there is a moment where robin williams actually grabs him like mm. um on his um how do you call it on his neck, and he's like, "You little piece of shit." So he actually uses the same amount of he matches the energy, yes, yes, yes. but in yes. a way that eventually, towards the end of the movie, uh, is therapeutic, exactly. Uh, whereas obviously, that in in this context today, that would be very difficult to do. <laughs> but, no, no, no,
2: no. And, Hang on, go slow. No, but, no, it's not difficult to do because there is a deep and profound secret there. Even though it's Hollywood, um, but there is a deep and profound secret of therapeutic transformation in that. Otherwise, it wouldn't quite work as a kind of as a as a film that really grabs people. That really, you know, is like a Greek tragedy in in terms of people identifying. Um, no, there is something profound about what you're, you know, the essence that you're describing of how. The transformation occurs. There's a secret there about transformation, and this is this is uh, just as a as a conceptual formulation in the field of psychotherapy. It's just in the last few years that we are able to think that and formulate that. Mm-hmm. And this is a you and I talked before the interview. We talked about Gestalt and you know your training in Gestalt and we talked about one of the the, the really precious uh, principles of gestalt that is not that cannot be quite found elsewhere so clearly in many approaches uh, which is the paradoxical principle of change But the paradoxical principle of change is an approximation of an even deeper paradox in psychotherapy which you are touching on which i've been busy with for you know the last 20 years which is the paradox of enactment and transformation, that in order for a wounding, a traumatizing, suffering experience to transform, we first need to fully have it. It needs to be experienced. And I think what you were saying is like that as responsible ethical therapists, we couldn't possibly you know, imitate Robin Williams in, in his procedure there, uh, because most therapists still to this day find this unthinkable. But why does a, a Hollywood script writer come up with this? Um, it's not just for dramatic effect. There is a deep truth there that almost inevitably, if you want good drama. And if you want the characters to work, it's similar to the the series, you see, that was written uh, on therapy called In Treatment. Mm -hmm. In order for the characters to work, you need to imply, even if you don't consciously articulate it, you need to imply a deep human reality. And that's the paradox that the suffering really needs to be intensely experienced ideally right there between client and therapist the wounding that caused the pain needs to be discovered in the here and now between client and therapist in order for let's okay. you could say in your neuroscience language you could say in order for the for the emotional significance of the moment to create neuroplasticity for transformation so there is something largely still in the majority of counseling and therapy taboo about embracing that paradox mm. that the transformation becomes available through enactment, through enactment of the wounding in the here and now between client and therapist. Um, there are some people who think about this and have formulated this explicitly, uh, um, you know, in relation to like psychoanalysis, for example. But on the whole, um, and, and, and in the language that you were using, uh, the therapist needs to be able to be the bad one, to be the wounding one. They need to have that capacity to be experienced like that, to be seen like that, to be accused of that, to, um, and to somehow be caught in enacting it. Mm-hmm. it's almost inevitable in 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 deep psychotherapy it's not inevitable in um, in more kind of behavior modificating counseling or you know in a more kind of uh, mm-hmm. ego adaptation kind of therapy which you know many people need and it's very useful for many people but if you want the deeper layers of the entrenched patterns to transform uh, then enactment is part of that transformative process that's Mm. a deep paradox yes
0: Mm. yeah i i i've i've actually just realized that i experienced that this weekend because i i'm just coming from my training weekend and i just remember a moment where i was like i'm not sure what i'm doing here i mean i was i was the therapist yes uh and I, there was something happening because i felt like i can't go i i there was a moment where i felt like i really need to differentiate here i can't go with and and there was a moment where i just I was like mm something is playing out here and i was i asked my client what do you think is happening between us now he was like uh-huh. i think i'm getting angry at you and i was i was like that's 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 the wound that that's and i that's the wound for me and actually as you were speaking this and i think that's i'm because i'm still a, on, like, learning and growing uh i just had therapy yesterday or the day before yesterday where um i was speaking about this part where i just got in touch with and uh, and the therapist i worked with she, i said um i drew something it's not here but I I drew something that's like very rageful and I said and I spoke with a friend of mine and she said that sounds like uh being afraid of your power uh and and the the Mm. therapist told me well of course you are afraid of your power you've never had the chance to experience it and that to me is clear is still kind of kind of unclear uh, and i'm i'm kind of i'm just mentalizing that but the yes. where i am now is if i i if i have if at the times where i wanted to be really rageful i kind of cut that out from myself i never had the chance to experience that i exist i'm here i'm i'm worthy and i really want to rip you apart because i'm important as well mm-hmm. um and if i didn't have that body experience it's very difficult to then even have a feeling of well i am here and i am worthy with a calm and kind of uh composed state so so th- there is something as you said about that enactment when i'm also feeling i'm constantly sitting there and i have i've noticed i've saying to my therapist like um I want to be rageful, but I want to be rageful at someone, but I don't want to be at you because you haven't done this, and so I'm constantly doing that in the contact. I'm kind of calming myself and the situation down, but I'm realizing that I maybe kind of should let myself into it. <laughs> uh, but well, it's,
2: that's it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because it's a sort of it's a sort of regress up infinitum where yeah doing violence to your potential violence yeah yeah
0: you're, yeah,
2: yeah you're constantly behavior modificating yourself yes um, for some kind of extreme that hasn't ever happened um so yes there's something about um
1: mm. you
2: know mm. once transformation has occurred you realize that what you called your own violence or perpetrator had just ordinary vital power in it. You know, the vital power is the is the is the integrated state that maybe can become available, but of course it cannot become available as long as you're constantly behavior modificating, Modifying. Hey, <laughs> um, you know, you're killing off the the rageful vitality that's needed in order to feel powerful so how are you going to get to being powerful if you're constantly you know avoiding and 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 killing off that part that part of you Mm. so that is a good example of the of the internal knots that we get into yeah and and where it is inevitable that you know we're trying to help ourselves but we are doing so through the existent dualistic structure which uh, does violence to yourself
1: yeah
2: no it's like a it's like a kind of uh, there's an internal scientific psychiatrist that says oh you're an unruly teenager you're out of control you know we need to behave and modificate you into some reasonable adult behavior yes and that—that that is not a soft, benign presence inside you. That's a pretty categorical, rigid, presumptuous person who appears to be operating with certainty and with a diagnostic and with some, some negative judgment, rejection. Probably of their own vitality, yeah. which they're taking out on you
1: mm.
0: you have just described my dad, but yeah
2: <laughs> there's no coincidence yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is
0: yeah, this is this is exactly why, um I love I love that play between experience and then and then Thinking. kind of, yeah. It's just it's just beautiful to 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 be in that process. Uh, I mean, I'm noticing this whole, this whole evening how energized I am by it. Um, yeah, good. And, and and in a way uh, being being like everything we talked about in the beginning before we started recording somehow is really um, becomes less important when when we get in touch with actually the actual beauty of psychotherapy yeah
2: yeah oh when we're talking about conflict avoidance yes there's layers and layers of conflict avoidance but the deep thing is that we we find ourselves emerging into some kind of adult identity
1: Mm.
2: with a terror uh, with the with our minds filled with the terror of the primitive yeah, no. Like Reich used to I'm say, and I'm really uh, sad.
0: We call it primitive. Is such a bad word, but yeah.
2: <laughs> I think it's quite a good word. You see, because to me, primitive is really good. Um, <laughs> uh, the, you know, Reich used to say, um, and you can you can jump from the fire, the fire, and go all kinds of down, all kinds of blind alleys and extremes and dogmatisms that uh you know there's a there's an article a chapter he wrote where he was reflecting on his own wounded defensive development as a practitioner through the 20s and within the realm of the psychoanalytic community in Vienna and um, and one thing that I always remember that he writes uh, this is he writes in 1940 so like like 15 years later um, when he had, Moved on quite a lot for himself. Um, And he said, We analysts, we could say we therapists, were children of our times. We were thinking and addressing subject matter, which we understood in principle, but didn't want to feel. Like we didn't want to feel, basically, we didn't want to be on the receiving end of sex and aggression and primitive raw feeling Uh, so we we were he says we were conceptualizing that these are the drives you know the deep instincts of what drives human beings into health or into neurosis but we didn't want to be on the receiving end of it we didn't actually want to experience it with coming at us or within ourselves So that is still valid to some extent, you know, that um, that you cannot have deep psychotherapy without having raw affect. You know, when you when you think about what is it that people are avoiding and that they are they are thrown into transgenerational denial or avoidance of. we now have an understanding of, uh, you know, Effective neuroscience, like the main person, one of the main people is Jack Punk said, who has expanded the idea of different animal, emotional systems in the human being in the brain in the brain. He doesn't locate it in genetics in brain chemistry in anatomy, it's across all the systems. And he distinguishes seven Seven emotional systems that have their own brain chemistry or their own kind of physiology, their own expression, their own anatomy, their own pathways in the body. There are seven uh, systems of primitive raw emotion. And if we're cut off from those, then we live a limpid, limited life. We don't feel our vitality. No, we need to be rooted in the animal. Embodiment means to some extent, not only, but it means to some extent being rooted in, in animal effective experience. Um, or at least in, in effective experience that we have in common with animals, you know. So rage is a really important, vital emotional functional no, uh uh system that's meant to protect you meant to be triggered when you're under threat when you're restricted when when you know somebody is uh is limiting you 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 want that system to kick in and the same the all the other systems they're not all hard you know there is a there is a system for play you know like dogs, puppies, they rough and tumble and they play. And play is a really important system of vitality and spontaneity. And you want to be able to fool around and monkey around and play and rough and tumble. And uh, these are really important aspects of being a vital human being. You need to be rooted in those kind of raw, effective experiences. And, uh, and is psychotherapy, counseling and psychotherapy, as we know it, is it capable of facilitating access, connection with those foundations of vital experience? Mm. Very, very, very limited ways. Because most of the time, therapists are as afraid, or sometimes more afraid, than clients of, of having those.
0: Yeah. I mean that's that's where I always feel it's I can't go with someone to places I haven't been. And so I feel like it's so important for me to have experientially as I mean, life's long. I won't have it all now and there is limitations always. Um but I I, I, I and and think we are not that
1: complicated
2: <laughs> uh, no. exactly there's the seven basic raw animal emotions that we that we need to integrate and have available for a full and rich and meaningful life and so it's not that complicated no it's just variations of that you know exactly. and at the end of the day, a lot of human suffering and neurosis and trauma you know it really just boils down you're having feelings you know the clients come to therapy and say <laughs> oh I suffer. I suffer anxiety and depression. Well, these are just human labels for you want to live an exciting life. And there's some fear, you know, you're restricting your vitality. This is, as you know, you know, as a Gestalt therapist, this is Pearl's definition of anxiety it comes from the German. It has to do with uh, narrowness. Anger, angst, anxiety is a, is when when you're not giving enough space, to your excitement you know that's what anxiety is so anxiety in that sense is it's not anxiety it's just feelings you know people are terrified of just having feelings so that is also true the human psyche is infinitely complex and deep and nuanced and diverse and and we really want to do justice to you know the individual in front of us but there is a level of raw feeling that is very simple you know where there's just a variety of feelings and you know all you need to do is have them and uh, you need you need somebody who is not afraid of them you know that's ideally in child development how does a child become uh, confident and at ease with affect regulation they they osmose it from the parents you know They that's what we call, you know, in trauma, auto regulation and interactive regulation. And that goes right back to early development, where uh, if the child is overwhelmed by strong feeling, they need interactive regulation. Well, how does a parent do that? Or how does a therapist, by extension, do that? Well, by being able to feel the waves of raw feeling within themselves without collapsing or or acting it out. You need to just feel the waves of vitality streaming through your body-mind system. And then you don't have to get into a panic when somebody has a whiff of feeling. You know, So you just need to be there. And there's not much to be done because you just need to be attuned and responsive and then the whole thing will blow over. The cycle, you know, in Gestalt terms, will complete itself, mm-hmm. and it's not a big deal. You know, it's just very ordinary human. It's not, you know, it doesn't have, doesn't have to have complicated models.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, that is something where where I feel like, can't you just see that? Like, is it you know? And and I um again being on the receiving end of therapy, it's not that easy <laughs> to just see that.
2: Yeah. Being, but, being on the receiving end of clients you mean
0: yeah yeah exactly, exactly. yeah mm. i mean it is it, i guess it's um i guess it's uh if we have the ability to name it so directly yes but i guess it's it's if we if we could do that probably the world will, will have been
2: a, a uh, better place a therapy, long time ago therapy, but... as, as you just said it's not that you know, on the, the emotional world is not that complicated. There's there's not that many permutations. It becomes very individual and complicated. But the main reason why therapy takes a long time, or one chunk, one one uh, stage of the journey, takes a long time because the client resists it like hell because they're terrified and there's trauma surrounding feeling and any kind of little bit of feeling is is experienced as catastrophic and so they the person holds out against it like dear life you know so it's like you know there's a little hole in the dam and they have to keep the finger in the in the dam because otherwise uh, all hell breaks loose so these fears of primitive overwhelm uh, are pervasive in the culture and uh, and really, it's just human feeling, and it's it can be processed fairly ordinarily. It's not then beyond that. Of course, there is individual subjectivity and the realm of the psyche, and we talked about imagination and so on. And on that level, therapy uh, can continue, you know, indefinitely. But the crunch, the initial crunch, is a lot to do with primitive feeling. This is the realm of Willem Reich, and uh, and. That's why I would argue that Wilhelm reich needs to be understood yeah. more deeply, more widely, more broadly. It needs to become part of uh, everybody's vocabulary. You know, It's mm-hmm. not the be-all and end-all, which I thought it was in the 80s, but uh, it needs to be one ingredient in how we approach therapy. Yeah. And the main thing that you need as a therapist then, because you have this perception and you have some access to this, and you have some fairly immediate access to the simplicity of that in your, your client you basically need to be held as a therapist you know you said it's not so easy when you're in a therapeutic position but how do you get held as a therapist in engaging with these intensities you know alan shaw was talking about i think some years ago he talked about this whole deeper level of raw emotion. Uh, most of his career, he was talking about the kind of dichotomy between the left brain and the right brain and encouraging his colleagues to work more from the right brain as the deeper and, and you know, preceding the left brain. But then in recent years, he actually integrated Reich a bit more again because he was thinking about the brain stem and the brain stem, you know, the kind of reptilian mind. Is more the center of the raw emotion, and uh, and he said we need to um, engage with that fundamental dissociation that people's minds have from the brain stem, from the raw emotion, and then you know the, I can remember he was presenting these, these these PowerPoint slides you know hour after hour, but uh, when he had come to that stage, there was a little break for you know two minutes questions in the in the incessant flow of the slides. And uh, people say, but, but if that's true, then how, that, what does that mean for training? There is no training that helps people, helps prepare people for this. And, you know, how do we integrate And And then he made the same maneuver that you were talking about earlier, where it gets outsourced to therapy. He basically said, well, the, the student needs to be in good therapy as if that's where it's guaranteed to happen. You know, that's yeah. a wishful thing but basically he didn't have an answer how do we help you know the social organism the learning environment of a psychotherapy training to to include more raw affect you know Mm. once raw affect flows imagination and thinking flow much more easily also they become creative and productive you know uh, rather than defensive and so how do we do that? So that is where, in principle, not in the form that it maybe existed in the 80s, but there is some expertise in the in the communities of somatic psychology, body-oriented therapies, uh, body psychotherapy. You know, they have a history of at least taking raw emotion seriously. And they have many techniques for dealing with them. So uh, the modern cousins or the modern developments of these origins are, uh, you know, sensory motor therapy and uh, and uh, somatic experiencing. You know, they're all taught by people who were around in the '70s and '80s, and they know these kind of early origins of the somatic approaches, um, and they know about the you know this kind of philosophy of of fully expressing the feeling. In order to relax the mind and make clear thinking available you know you can't think clearly if you're sitting on a volcano
0: no so (laughs)
2: um yeah so that's an important that's an important development for generally for psychotherapy and there's not many of us who can actually facilitate that and hold people in their terror both as clients and then also as therapists on the receiving end of it and how do you do that you know you need some supervision supervision that can do justice justice to that and you need also a community of practitioners that supports you in doing that because you know you're going a bit out you know for, from many people's perspective you're going a bit off piece, like robin williams and you know? it's the that that way lies uh danger but uh Unless we go into those dangerous territories, uh, no deep therapy will ever occur. You
0: know. Yeah, that 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 is. I mean, that is definitely my my experience because I have noticed that now rumination is almost diagnostic for me. I'm like that means yes, exactly. I'm suppressing something. I'm like
1: absolutely. Assuming, yes.
0: Because because before I was living in rumination, so it was very difficult to notice the difference but now it's like now it's like ah i'm overthinking this what have i not expressed (laughs) or what have i not gotten in touch with
1: um
0: and so and so but it's 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 a journey to to get there if that is basically a yeah a constant um it has been the norm and i'm also thinking um I'm also thinking depends what needs to be reenacted because some people's histories are quite difficult and it, it
2: yeah is... There, is a, there is a potential and this you know this is these are some of the blindnesses and weaknesses of the origins of that particular tradition, which was really very, very focused on on catharsis and discharge you know in those days, you know I was part of it. Uh, I was really convinced that if I had a discharge or if I could facilitate a discharge in a client and full expression with banging cushions and things like that, that was successful therapy done and dusted.
1: But actually,
2: all we had was, you know, the release of some volcanic primitive feeling. Uh, What, what, how that got integrated is that's the important thing. Um, We didn't pay attention to that. And also, I mean, the much bigger problem is that in trying to uh, access and provoke or challenge or facilitate or seduce or coax the client into the deeper feeling, we were enacting all kinds of habitual patterns, wounding patterns, a little bit like you kind of behavior modificating away your your anger and rage uh, as body oriented therapists we were enacting all kinds of things in analytic language in the transference counter transference uh, because we were just so certain and convinced that we had the superior therapeutic approach you know so we were completely so I, I was when i teach this i i often talk about how the the precious gifts of the body psychotherapy somatic tradition were achieved uh at the expense of relational obliviousness we were relationally oblivious but we were very hot on the body mind the client's body mind our own body mind the bottom-up process of the body mind the raw feelings we were really hot on this uh but at the expense of very untherapeutic relational uh, enactments which uh, nobody talked about and because we thought that we had had found and developed a much uh, a, a therapeutic approach that was much more fast and effective and superior to psychoanalysis. It never occurred to us that there may be something to learn from psychoanalysis. That came, you know, a few years later.
0: That is, that is. I always feel like, uh, for example, I feel like Gestalt is the rebellious child, but I yes. feel like, but I feel like it, it didn't come to kind of back to integration because I feel like every. My, it feels like these um disciplines are are like children mm. of something, and like yeah. children, we have a fa a teenage phase where we reject the parents mm. to completely yeah. Yeah. to completely go for something ours, but then we realize I mean like like mm. we realize at some point that it's not about that. It's yes, we found something new, which is like a. a I think a healthy way a growth yes, and, then, yes. and then we reintegrate all the good stuff that our parents actually gave us I really I like yeah yeah so I feel like for me that's been I mean I think I wasn't I was always very integrative in in mm-hmm. the way I think because I was always yes. annoyed I mean I, I actually had one psych Supervision session where I just came and said I was like I'm not I'm not a Gestalt therapist I'm never going to be a Gestalt therapist like I mean it's something I love it's it's something I appreciate uh, and it's the same thing like science I know its limitations and it just feels always so important to for me it always felt like why can't we just realize that there is a limitation to everything there is a there is a person I interviewed who wrote a book. Mm-hmm. That, Uh, how to live 27 uh, conflicting answers and one weird conclusion. But what I appreciate about the book is that he Mm. actually, he took, for example, how to live, get rich. And then he took that idea almost to the extreme and we, but never really falling over the precipice. And then he would be like, how to live, stay present. And then he took that idea to the extreme. And then whenever you do this, you realize that how to live is actually to hold the polarity.
2: Yes, and, very good.
0: And so, to me, that is like the process of therapy. I, if like if I would love, if I what I think is like a functional end of therapy is a person who says like there's no right way. It's just like I am able to slide in between this, mm-hmm. and 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 the more of these polarities that I can access, um, the richer my life experiences. Yes, and
2: that's a beautiful formulation, which I think you know you discovered maybe through with the help of that book, which you discovered and formulated for yourself. And uh, it may be satisfying on or the opposite to to know that uh, you're reinventing the wheel because Jung yeah, yeah. talked about that. So he had a he had an idea. He he came up you know because he was classically educated. He easily came up with complicated Greek words. But he called this kind of oscillating between the extremes within within an overall process towards integration and individuation. Uh, He called this enantiodromia, which means from one extreme to the other. And that is the way of vital life that you don't immediately find the middle path. Uh, but that you can that you can be fully present and fully vital in one extreme, and you can be fully vital in the other extreme, and then you come up with a vital synth- synthesis um, out of that swinging between the extremes. So yes, that is that is that is, and he found the same principle um, in alchemy actually, which is why he thinks about the therapeutic process uh, in in also in alchemical metaphors um because there is a similar understanding that the transformative process you know of cooking gold out of lead um uh, can happen like that and it and, and and involves this kind of swinging between the extremes and the integration of opposites
1: mm-hmm. so
2: that's where paradox becomes really you know so to you and me these are really precious important manifestations of the more uh mature stages of the process so you and i have gone back to to that where you know we have some excitement where our growing edge is but uh it's important to to realize that many people find these things utterly repulsive and traumatizing you know if you ask people to be in the conflict to in the tension between the opposites uh for many people because of their biography that is very triggering and uh, and trauma tra- potentially traumatizing yeah. so what is what is a kind of exciting vital expansion um you know into the vistas of a, of a fulfilled life at the later stages of the journey can be utterly counterintuitive and traumatic and and dangerous you know uh, at, at at an earlier stage in the process so yeah in the way that our conversation goes we oscillate between sort of doing justice to people who have not had the benefit of some of this and, and you know as we're implying it requires investment you know mm-hmm. out there in the world the people are offering all kinds of quick fixes and, and solutions but uh uh the psyche is deep and repetitive it needs to you know in the in the union imagination of the process they have one image that's like a walled garden and you go around in circles in the garden and every, with every circle you you see more of the landscape and what's actually there and you become but you keep circling and circling and circling and uh Many people say, oh, this is a waste of time. I'm just going around in circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, a lot of the process is going around in circles, but mm-hmm. something deepening. So it's not actually circles, it's a spiral, because it's deepening and uh, growing and expanding. Um, but that is not a quick fix. You know That requires patience uh, and curiosity about the psyche rather than a quick fix for the ego that wants to look good in the world you know yeah but yes this 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 book that you're talking about that sounds interesting you know how to how to take one supposed value to its to its extreme where it suddenly turns out the opposite is also true
0: yeah and i think i uh, as you said that that it's not a new idea that that's what i felt like throughout because i was always again kind of quite attuned to what's happening for me and i first had the experience and then i would get oh this is stoic philosophy or like mm-hmm. um i would have the words for something that's my experience and then i'm thinking we're all touching the same elephant here um in uh, if i f- if they didn't say it before me i would have probably formulated and then and then we would probably get to the like the jungian archetypal things that there are some things that are really um that are really core for for a lot of us or even across history or to to me that that's that's something that I always find really i'm' i I'm, I'm I find myself thinking like what would my behavior thinking be like if I was I don't know living in in that age in that time and all these kind of things so I always feel like there, is, there there are some things that are core to how we are built which we can't escape regardless of the level of technological advancement. Um, no. uh, and no. so it feels like we just Technology kind of have... Usually
2: it just uh, makes the suffering more extreme, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I felt like i'm noticing the time and i'm just thinking uh, there has been uh, quite uh, quite a lot in this uh quite a lot
2: of quite a journey we've taken yes good
0: yeah yeah and uh, i'm i'm just curious where are you now <laughs>
2: um i i i haven't kept track um i'm also slightly confused by which bits of conversation we had before the interview and what we had interviews in, in the interview and was I repeating myself and you know and and how have we ended up talking who is it accessible to or for whose ears is it suited and it
0: might have been um, for hours but that doesn't matter
2: maybe <laughs> um yeah um I think I think that we managed to keep the conversation kind of maybe uh, sufficiently uh, free from jargon to be comprehensible without psychotherapy training. Um, I'm wondering whether we've done enough justice to people who who haven't experienced therapy and are not in that world, who are more coming as clients. Um, So, I mean, if they have any comments or questions or feel ignored or alienated or talked down to or whatever people might feel, then, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, you probably have a comment section on the, on the blog. So, so we can, uh, people can comment and interact with us about what, how they disagree with things or how they feel we ignored things or how they have questions that we haven't addressed or didn't pursue. Um, yeah it's interesting it's in you're you're an interesting person so it's interesting to have a conversation with you and you've been around the block enough to you know to understand the 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 deeper principles of what psychotherapy has to offer um and yes there is your scientific mind providing an outside perspective that isn't no, because without that, as I think we said before the interview, um, you know, my experience of uh, coming to psychotherapy in the '80s to psychotherapy training in the '80s is really was like a kind of you, you join the cult. So without the scientific mind there, checking, checking, and bringing some kind of scientific, the methodology of scientific thinking to it we are really very much in danger of just you know fantastical wishful magical thinking um, and idealization and we're making everything better and psychotherapy is wonderful but actually you know it's a human activity so it has human flaws in it left right and center
0: yeah and there is interesting thing because i i find it interesting how many people um, have something against psychotherapy as not being scientific and i when i st- i was reading freud i realized his 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 conceptualization of even freudian slip is coming from linguistics from the study of language and how we how we think and form language and and i'm i'm thinking where was this where is this gap created i mean uh, it, it somehow feels i i can imagine that there has been a lot that has come in but but i feel like even 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 jung was was a doctor (laughs) um i mean a psychiatrist
2: he he discovered some of his differences with freud through very clear scientific methodology you know he did word association and he measured the reaction that that a person had which suggested the presence of a complex that was plain straightforward pretty sophisticated scientific research and inquiry you know following strict scientific methodology so uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and you know there is with increasing narcissism there's an argument for saying that people like freud and jung they had proper education classical education they were trained to think and uh, you know that the capacity in the culture for that kind of integrative thinking scientific and psychological uh and lateral kind of creative thinking um, you know that's been dumbed down you know I mean there's all kinds of wonderful minds that were surrounded by but uh you know there's there's some capacities that they had at the time that gets hugely underestimated um, in the way that maybe psychoanalysis and, and psychotherapy has developed, you know like uh, I studied for a few years, I studied uh, public attacks you know by journalists and in the media uh, and criticisms of of therapy and how it was um, how it was both idealized in some in some sections um, uh, but more frequently it was denigrated.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and uh, it's very similar to what Winnicott said about uh, motherhood you know how mothers are idealized but when we're given half a chance and they're with a bit of disappointment then we feel entitled to rage at them And, and psychotherapy gets in the public at least this was true in the 90s when I really investigated it um that seemed to be sort of true for psychotherapy, that that same split of, you know, some kind of omnipotent person who can really see me and understand me and who can see straight through me with their laser perception, uh, the power of that, the idealized power of that versus the denigration and the disappointed rage. And, um, you know, one example of that was uh, in those days, there was a kind of TV psychiatrist, who you know? Who basically dismissed all kinds of psychotherapy as woolly-minded, you know, middle-aged, middle-class kind of uh, goody goodies who couldn't who couldn't think clearly and who couldn't think scientifically and who who were lacking clear thinking. Mm. And uh, there was enough in that caricature to be true, uh, but also he was just talking from a complete misapprehension as to what therapy is and it can be you know this is what you and i are really interested in we we are quite clear that about its potential of what it can be in the right hands you know and uh and people out there they are looking for deep psychological meaningful wisdom like gold dust it's really lacking in the culture and that's why uh, some parts of the media they are really Invasively greedy, when it comes to psychotherapy, they want to kind of get into it and 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 unmask it and pull it out into the into the big eye, uh, but based on a on a complete misunderstanding and misapprehension and uh, and their own wild projections into it, which they then which they then attack and dismiss uh, when they haven't even been able to be curious about what it is in the first place. So there but, was a lot of that.
0: There's something interesting in the human psyche. I have that um privilege to be part of of two things that are on that place. So on that pedestal, which is science as a profession and psychotherapy. And and it's not unique to psychotherapy. Anything any we can godify any deify anything. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and everything, and with the same forcefulness, we can also denigrate it. Uh, and mm-hmm. I always think—I mean, I'm—I'm seeing myself. I—I I could like it took me some time to realize that, but there was a moment where I was where i, I saw that I'm projecting my split everywhere, <laughs> and I—I I, I imagine that that it is in our nature, uh, in inherently to, to to project those splits. So so the good and bad god versus demon um bad mother good mother bad parent good parent and and that can be anything from your therapist to a partner to a, a whole field of psychotherapy to Absolutely. you know you can yeah. make it as big as you want and so for me yeah. it's really interesting to see because i mean even science as again has its limitations and and sometimes i i feel like i feel so Uh, sad to how much of its richness is missed by the oversimplification of it. And then I feel really angry when I see how it's used as the ultimate, the penultimate truth on everything, Uh, again, dismissing the complexity. So I feel it's not the only field uh, that is suffering from From that, and I think I feel like it's it's in our nature. But I feel I would love if, uh, if by talking wow. about this more, um, and by constant reminding ourselves how small we actually are, um, and how much we need to put that. Oh my God! At the moment, I feel so small that I need someone to be that God to, to tell big, me yeah. what it. Yeah. Um, And to normalize that and to be like, it's fine. Just be aware Uh, you're doing it. I'm doing it. We are all doing it.
1: Clearly,
2: clearly it is human nature because human beings are doing it. So it must be there. But uh, it is also very immature. Yeah. And, Yeah. uh, And, and, And
0: we will continue doing it because I imagine you you don't do it to psychotherapy because you are quite critical about it but it, it might be something you know there might be something for a brief even a brief period of time that you might be like you know nice great and then you're kind of disappointed
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no I'm, I'm not saying that some kind of process of you know being inspired and being disappointed mm-hmm. continues you know continues lifelong yeah but uh, but I think what we're claiming for the possibility of, of, of a life journey, a maturation in the life journey and psychotherapy helping us with that maturation, that, that the source of the splitting and the source of the idealization and then the disappointment is inside.
1: Yeah,
2: And it's not the human condition for all time. It's because it's not out there you know, it is possible to experience all of that outer reality
1: uh,
2: in in a much more softly integrated paradoxical fashion where I don't have to, uh, you know, where where the middle way, like the the Buddha taught the middle way, where the middle way is uh, is self-evident because... I'm inhabiting it, you know, within myself.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I don't have to strive. I don't have to self-improve. I don't have to force myself. I don't have to denigrate myself. Um, but I'm resting in the middle way, which doesn't mean it's all boring. And uh, you know, the, the the middle way can still be full of of extremes and uncertainties and new things, and it can be very it can be a very vital and alive place that it's not characterized by these rave extreme reifications into into yes. and disappointment so that that to me is a more mature position mm-hmm. and that is a more mature position which can also translate itself um, that we can transmit to the next generations you know i can transmit to my students and supervisees you know they feel held they feel contained they it doesn't just happen through ideas it happens through them having a relational experience with me where they get a flavor that this is possible and then they imitate and absorb it and it becomes there so yeah we can transmit this to our students and supervisees and uh, and also of course to our children and so they don't have to be plagued by the same dichotomies in the same way um
0: and how has having children changed you?
2: I always thought I'd um, end up with more children than I have. And uh, I love children. I, you know, I think they are little Buddhas. Um, they they reveal back to us our own potential for awe and wonder and uh, being in the moment. And um you know, they are so there's so much learning that we can derive from really paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so much unlearning that we can do to to really regain a kind of uh, vital experience which they still have if we haven't damaged and robbed them of it so yeah um i didn't you know i'm i'm not the youngest anymore i'm now 63 i had sort of some years ago um i i thought you know i was not going to have any more children i have one uh, son who's 25 26 now and um and i thought that was it And so to have a young child now, uh, you know, most men my age would probably resent it because I've got other things to do. And I've got some, but I don't have that. I really enjoy my time with him and it's such a blessing. And, uh, um, you know, I don't have that kind of youthful drivenness to get somewhere. That interferes with me being hanging out with him and being spacious with him and marveling at him. I mean, he's just a little miracle, and uh, and there really is a Buddha nature in him that uh, is very immediate and obvious to me. Um, there's a wisdom um, there and an innocence that is, is very moving and beautiful. And
1: uh,
2: hmm. so, um, yeah, I think therapy has helped me immensely um, to be with him in a way that you know i didn't i wasn't able to with my first son quite like that i was pretty good i mean i always enjoyed playing with kids and i think he, i was a good father uh, already then um but there are depths of it that uh, also because you know he was the product of a difficult relationship which uh, which didn't last uh, and and separated at a crucial stage in his development. so that's one of the main uh, legacies of my suffering and uh, my woundness and deficiencies earlier in life that uh, we separated at what was quite a traumatic stage for him so I, I live with that you know I need to live with that I can see the effects on him and His lostness and and his split you know between his parents and which is a has become a split in him so i'm sad about that and i'm you know continue to be involved with his development in a way that makes the best out of uh, some of the damage that realistically we caused But he's also he's a he's a teacher he's on his path there his his awareness is growing and deepening and uh, and he can be very challenging and incisive and I I love that.
0: Mm. It's really nice. It's almost I've heard your voice change when you started speaking speaking mm. about your children. Mm. Yeah. We've started with softness and we are somehow ending with softness. And I just want Mm. to to ask, I always ask this question because I I love idiosyncrasies, but what is an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? What is something that people would not connect with how they normally perceive you?
2: Well, my friends know all too well so you know there are people but uh not many people in the world of psychotherapy probably quite understand that i'm really a peasant and uh, i'm really into growing things and uh, uh, i'm not quite a farmer I, I i'm i can't handle big areas like that but uh, no we are building a life here near the rainforest well- that involves some degree of self-sufficiency which is what we're aiming at and uh, you know we're managing it's not it's hard but uh, we're managing an astonishingly non-toxic life especially for my son i mean he's going to be a rare control group apart from you know some indigenous people all over the world still um that are less affected by the tentacles of civilization that he is really living in a minimally toxic environment in every respect. Um, one of the things that I've discovered, which people would probably think I'm, you know, I'm some kind of tinfoil hat kind of loopy person, that um, uh, we suffered um, until the recognition that my wife is electrosensitive. She, I didn't know this was a thing, but we found that she for years she suffered and was debilitated. By what is now very clear in our minds is man-made electromagnetic radiation, mobile phones, Wi-Fi, mobile towers. Uh, uh, this we discovered this about three years ago, and this was one really instrumental reasons uh, reason for 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 moving here to Central America and away from civilization. We live quite remote. We live off grid, and this is the place where where she recovered. I mean, in the in the UK, she was told her immune competency was that of an 80-year-old. She was so, her her system was so shot to pieces. She couldn't walk upstairs without heart palpitations. And she was told that she would probably, her system would not be strong enough to ever conceive or bear a child. And uh, so in that regard, getting her out of that environment and getting her to a place where there's no man-made radiation, hardly at all, you know, there's no mobile signal, I have to drive three quarters of an hour to be on the internet, to talk to you. Uh, There's nothing going on there. Um, And that's where she recovered. Um, And, and then, you know, she got pregnant. We didn't expect that but would be possible. Um, So he's a little bit of a miracle child in that regard. And he's having a very non-toxic, no plastics, and, you know, no chemicals and very natural environment that he's growing into and it's interesting to wonder you know how that affects his developing capacities And you know, when you see how many how many kids in right in the in the, in the middle of civilization you know how there is an autism epidemic i just heard the figures of the projected cost of autism into you know people's adulthood and old age is astronomical um I, you know, I, I keep an open mind as to what, you know, the, the, the causes of autism that some people are saying genetic, but you don't have a genetic epidemic that suddenly gets unleashed within, you know, a span of 20 years, mm. that's not how genetics work. So it is something else. And, you know, my first port of call as a body oriented psychotherapist is always psychosomatic. So I look, you know, I, I would look for with any symptom, Uh, I would look for some kind of correlation with the family system with the internal family system with the with the you know Gabo Mate has been talking about now for years about the correlation between and I think it's scientifically you know there's good scientific evidence that uh, chronic conditions really hang together with uh, childhood trauma developmental trauma and that's something that I you know I've in, in my little network of body oriented therapists that we've assumed that since the 70s you know it's not news to us but out there in the world it's, it's more recent so that would be my first port of call to think about it in psychosomatic and family systems terms But uh, you know now with us having come here we realize how toxic much of civilization is and uh, how much it may be an environmental toxic condition or situation that that contributes to that also um because you really only notice when you're out of it um yes you
0: know. is the same like trauma it's like you really only notice when you're when you're out of it
2: exactly mm. so i mean my wife really had to for for any kind of survival with any kind of Body mind functionality. She had to get out, that I noticed the benefits. You know, I'm I feel so much healthier, and uh, and I had to overcome a lot of skepticism and resistance. I mean, you know, this is just a little wireless mouse. You know, how how, how does that affect you? No, so, oh, I can feel it, and, and said, how can you feel it? But I know now we've had so much evidence. She's been on a steep learning curve. It's like a kind of uh, a sense that has been dormant. It's like a blind person learning to see. So she can now, when somebody comes with a phone that's on, she can distinguish whether they have Wi-Fi on or Bluetooth on. She knows that she can feel the difference. I don't know how she does that. But uh, I don't have any doubt that her system somehow has some perceptive channel that I'm completely oblivious of. But uh, she really needs to be protected against that and away from that. And uh, it's completely changed her being in the world and her vitality and health and everything. So if you think that most of civilization, most of Western civilization lives in a completely irradiated, escalatingly irradiated environment that does have, I mean, she used to be, she used to have mad episodes where she would, you know, nearly qualify for psychiatric diagnostics, you know. Uh, but that was when, when, when the exposure, that's what we think now, <clears> the <throat> exposure to radiation has very immediate physiological effects. It can drive people insane. There's a real question in our minds now that isn't being asked: how many people in mental health services, how many people di- you know, diagnosed with the uh, schizophrenia and psychosis, and, and how many people who are completely zombified by psychopharmaca are to some extent, their system is overwhelmed by what they call electrosensitivity you know emf radiation many people that i talk to would think i'm utterly nuts you know i know friends and colleagues they think i'm on some kind of deluded hobby horse but uh you know we could say you know 20 years later they you know they said the same thing about ddt asbestos and 11 and, i don't know whatever you know i was in the 80s i said aspartame is a uh, that that sounds like to me as if it's going to be carcinogenic well now we know that they knew it all along but they were hiding it and they made profit for you know decades but uh, and in how many things is it still today i wouldn't touch it with a barge pole i think it's carcinogenic how can i prove it i can't you know it's just an intuition um but yeah so you know we're trying to live a life that really leaves me very uncertain as to what is physiology, physiological causes, toxic environmental influences, what is psychosomatic trauma, transgenerational trauma, you know, what causes, what is a whole industry of autism? Mm. Uh, and people make out that if you're autistic, you're landed with it. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's a psychosomatic Condition even if it's triggered by environmental toxins, you need to clean up. You need to clean that up. Uh, it's difficult within civilization, but you need to clean that up. Uh, but then it's a psychosomatic, psychological process of transformation that needs a particular, like all transformation amongst humans, needs a particular relational environment. It needs a relational container and uh, you know it needs a paradoxical presence of attunement and like you said differentiation you know when you were experimenting with i really need to differentiate here from this from the client you know it needs somebody who's capable of that kind of engagement and processing interactive regulation and processing mm. but uh, that is not understood as a whole not in the culture and not even fully in many uh, many uh sections of the psychotherapeutic field which Mm -hmm. is too caught by genetic reductionism not fully understanding the holism the the reichian kind of legacy of really understanding the 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 holistic nature of the body mind and the psyche um Mm -hmm. so you know there's there's a lot of ignorance which Mm -hmm. creates endless infinite suffering a lot of which is unnecessary No, I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to make myself available. I'm partly talking to you because, you know, I'm now really at the back end of beyond and not very accessible. And I've had to focus on the practicalities of, uh, you know, uh, building a building a home, um, a small holding. Uh, And, you know, the idea is to build a retreat so people can get away from civilization and experience what it's like to be out of it as you said you know you only know once you're out of it Uh, so that goes both for radiation chemicals psychological abuse torture tortured the tortured souls Uh, you know we're building a retreat um but i'm i'm in principle i'm available if people want help I could be teaching psychotherapy students and psychotherapy practitioners all day long. I love being in large groups, ideally face-to-face. I hate all this kind of virtual cyberspace therapy. You know, I'm an embodied therapist and given half a chance, I want to I want to be in a room together face-to-face, uh, in the flesh, and I want to do vital things like Getting in touch with primitive processes, feelings, raw feelings, breath work, you know, those are some of the tools of psychotherapy that are quite marginal still, but I cherish them, you know, to me, they are part of the package and uh, I am, you know, I'm getting on, but uh, I have no inkling or impulse or inclination to retire, you know, I'm just getting started. So, you know. The, I am available, and this is available. You know, some kind of some kind of transformation of suffering is perfectly available, yeah. you know, to most people. Yeah, it's not it's not rocket science. It's really fairly straightforward.
0: Yeah, that that is my experience. As you were speaking, also, I I, I have a book here which is called, well, the author is Bruno Clavier. It's, it's um, but it's about. Uh, how some children are identified are symptom children. Um, yes, absolutely. Whatever, and, all
1: children now.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think I think um, I think to this point, it's always it's really about how we get to the point of I trust myself. Like you know, you you don't have evidence, and I don't have evidence, and. Um, uh, and I oh, obviously there are so many things we need to be cautious because even our intuition sometimes is corrected by real world data, but but there is something there is something about what you were just saying that just feels right, um, and I think it's also important to slowly transition into a world where that's also cherished um, as a valid. Uh, um, as a valid experience of reality and if that, that yeah, I don't no, I mean, think,
2: I think we'll... sorry I, I um, if if I have an intuitive hypothesis based on let's say let's say a holistic transformative process you know the way you were talking for example about your experience now of your body mind which wouldn't have been available to you, like, I don't know, five years ago or something. If I have an intuitive hypothesis, I'm very suspicious of real-world data that has been arrived at through a dualistic methodology. You know, In most research, it takes me two minutes to pick holes into the methodology. And how it's based in reductionism, uh, you know, just in terms of psychosomatics, where the body-mind, the psychosomatic axis is not understood as a two-way street. You know, people mm-hmm. imagine that biology affects psychology. Reich already said 90 years ago, it's a two-way street. Psychology creates biology and biology uh, shapes and conditions. It's a, it's a, it's a loop. Um, so when I see people arguing the toss from a, and, you know, very convinced, and I can see their methodology is not holistic, if I can see that it's reductionist in any way, if I can see that it doesn't come from, you know, like we talked about the the the, the, the more modern deconstructions of the dualistic mind, you know, like what Shaun Gallagher calls the four E kind of conditions of the of the embodied, the embedded, the extended, and the mm-hmm. active mind um if i see that people are not coming from that which was you know uh, one of the people who really helped him with that was uh uh, francisco varela you know who was a scientist and he you know he he had a lot to say about self-organization and the 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 cosmic process of self-organization and this is what we're speaking to you know the psychotherapy this through a psychological door we understand bottom-up self-organization in a way that maybe many scientists don't, because they don't experience it in their own subjective experience, so they don't mm-hmm. expect to see it out there. Um, so if I see people confronting me with data or confronting whatever intuitive hypothesis I have with so-called data, then how are how were the data picked? Through what kind of methodology, through what kind of lens, mm-hmm. through what kind of uh, fundamental assumption were the data collected and picked and usually, like I said, I can pick holes in, in into yeah. most psychological research, because it's not rooted, but that doesn't mean that research isn't possible. You know, the kind of research that I've occasionally suggested to you know when when we get neuroscientists come to our conferences and things and I've said. I, I there is research that we can do, you know, give me two groups of psychotherapists. And one of them I teach for a year about how to work in a more embodied way. And then you can do whatever measurements and videos and whatever you want to do. And one, they just meet and they do their own thing. And then study the difference in qualitative outcomes or whatever parameters you want to research. We can do research like that. Now, that doesn't that doesn't tell anybody what I would do with these people to, quote, improve their capacity therapeutic capacity it would still be as elusive as ever But what we can reveal is that we can make a systematic intended difference to therapists capacity to be be better more more holistic more transformative psychotherapists I would you know any researchers out there they want to do that you know they want to fund that or, or do that I'm happy to be available. Mm.
0: Um, and that's an interesting thing because I always think of uh, that would also depend the the problem with good research is sampling size it's always yeah. sampling size yeah. and the problem with good research is that you can almost always see something or unsee something depending on how you choose your sample and what you do with it so so you know I can I can imagine that you know if if the mm. way you pick your therapists to be people who are already inclined like you know like if you yeah, yeah, like people, you yeah
1: exactly. yeah yes
0: uh, then it would be much easier to do that in a year. But then I imagine that there will be also a group of people that might completely not be not be able to to do that, and then I'm. Not 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 be able, but it would take longer no, no, it... relax,
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no. I yeah. mean, you and I already and... found as part of the conversation that we have a passion for depth and that exactly. we have a critique of the excuses against depth. Huh? So that is a significant factor. So that that you know, so if I had ten people like you where we agree on that, even just as one criterion that would not a representative sample you know that would be like you say that's a that's an error in sampling because that's not representative I agree
0: yeah I mean and and it's also it's also really because I'm now like I'm in these business spaces where we talk a lot about well what's our niche what's our group and I mm. and I'm 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 noticing I'm noticing how much of that is about recognizing, whose language people can actually absorb um, and Green. and 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 that is and and we are essentially talking the same thing, but somehow the way we express the what way did, we body what and the this...
2: marketing person will tell you, you know like this is the psychology of marketing. Uh, and you know for many psychotherapists who are self-employed businesses, um, they are really naive about, they, they, claim, and this was, I was challenged by a marketing person like that, you know, you claim to be good in communication, but your website is useless at communication. You know, you really don't speak the language of, of your customers. You speak your own language and you hammer it down their throat. And, uh, there's nothing inviting about that. You know, um, you talk about you, you're not talking about them. So many therapists fall foul of really very basic marketing psychology. Mm-hmm. And it's to do with kind of presenting ourselves. And, you know, you and I talked before about the, 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 the ridiculous irony um, that many therapists present themselves on their website in terms of a list of so-called symptoms and uh, you know, which, which imply a medical approach a medical diagnosis, uh, which sort of implied the impression to the general public that we've been trained in all these kind of medical specialisms that we know how to deal with anger or loss or anxiety or whatever labels we want to throw. Uh, These are not categories that most of us even subscribe to. So we're just putting it on the website for marketing purposes. but we're not really uh, thinking about the experience of the person you know if you want good marketing advice as a therapist you want to sell yourself and attract as many people you know convert as many people coming to a website as possible i say write your most passionate mission statement on a piece of paper and post it to your bedroom wall and then forget about it and then write something as vague and nondescript as possible and put it on your website you know, because you want to want it's like therapy you want people to project into it what they seek you know you want to create an open space rather than uh, or at least some there needs to be we need to do some justice to the fact that it's meant to be an open space and not some religion that they need to sign up to where they have to subscribe to your mission statement i mean that's not therapy that's a you know that's like i say it's a kind of mission Proselytizing or something, you know, but that's not therapy. So, but many therapists do this. They say, you know, uh, this is the list of symptoms and diagnoses that people come to me for. Yeah, but that's not how you think to yourself. And that's when you come to supervision with me. That's not how we think. You know, you do the same thing with everybody, whether they suffer depression, anxiety, you do the same kind of approach that you do with everybody. So don't pretend that it's tailored to the, to the client's symptom. You know, it's a lie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I and I think there's there's something to be said about how much we actually want to be seen and also what I'm learning is that what our that our copy or how they call it really ta- says a lot about us as in what are we communicating in ourselves who are we communicating to and 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 there is there is something in that I think I'm recognizing for myself how much I'm catering to wanting to save, if in my in how I speak, with, uh, as opposite to inviting to an open space, and I think that that is basically that is basically also a work of therapy. <laughs> um
2: Absolutely. exactly. That's what the marketing person was challenging me. But he said, you know, yeah. uh, there's no sophisticated communication about your website. That is, that's a dumb way of uh, presenting yourself. And it's all about your own neurosis. It's not nothing to do with connecting with people or inviting people.
0: Exactly, and I think that is that is I think that is somehow how we project into the world.
2: (laughs) Um, Absolutely, and uh, and of course we can you know we quite validly you know need to kind of uh, catch up with and deconstruct our own blindness as therapists and our kind of mission and you know the savior complex and all of that. And yes. the social complex, you know, which is just a recipe for burnout. Yes, uh, the bulk of the profession uh, does not. I wrote an article. I mean, you might have seen it. Uh, I was invited to write for the BAC Journal, Private Practice, and I, you know, I was running a workshop on the sustainability of practice and what really exhausts therapists and how do they process the emotional load of their practice and how do they burn out and how do we prevent burnout and you know the standard things oh you you need to really clear yourself before and you ground yourself and you write notes and you have a crystal in your room and you know but nothing about the inherent paradoxes of an impossible process that is incredibly emotionally taxing you put yourself into the firing line of people's primitive unconscious processes And, uh, you know, we need to get to the bottom of that if we really want to help ourselves, you know, face these things realistically in order to have a realistic handle on on how to process these. And especially because we're mainly in the field of the talking therapies, people are gloriously naive and oblivious of the body-mind impact, you know, secondary traumatization, vicarious traumatization so um so the reality is that most therapists can't cope with more than four clients a day and many people especially now the way the global economy is developing uh, therapy is a luxury item you probably can't make a good living on four clients a day or you know like four clients a day like four days a week that's not gonna cut it so there is a real question about how we really face the impossibility of the therapeutic profession, the inherent paradoxes of therapy and how we prepare students and and uh, you know, beginning practitioners for the tsunami of emotional load that's that they're going to encounter and uh, and so there's a lot of education, secondary training, CPD training that that needs to happen in order to, get people emotionally ready for practice. You know, like most most therapists are so naive. You know, they say amongst the experienced therapists, we say that, uh, you know, when we kind of, when we are tutors and we assess people and, you know, people are so desperate to get their paper of qualification. And I've always said in training, you know, yes, okay, you care about your paper, but I care about you being a therapist that survives. You know, I pre- I've i got bigger, bigger fish to fry. So, you know, because at the moment with your concern, About yourself and your piece of paper you know the first borderline that comes along will eat you and uh, you can't imagine how much emotional energy you will invest in just plain survival you know and uh, if you have two or three of those uh, you won't have energy for a life so uh, people are completely naive about these things and the body mind impact especially so we need to really be be preparing people for processing uh you know you can't switch off your mirror neurons you know your mirror neurons are, are beavering away all the time and you know i don't know people this, this is a known thing now in psychotherapy by many people that your mirror neurons are beavering away translating what you perceive to be the internal state of the other into your own body you basically absorb the feeling state of the other and then in the olden days in psychoanalysis, people call this projective identification and we can throw all kinds of labels of empathy and vicarious traumatization at it. But essentially, your task is to lay yourself open to osmosing the internal conflicted state or traumatized states of the client's inner internal world. And th- you need to process that. And then therapy becomes a very very difficult process that is not at all linear and most therapists are not prepared for that you know so they need help mm-hmm. there's the there's the help that you and i talked about in terms of making oneself uh, available to the raw feelings that are cooking there um, but of course your body is absorbing those whether you consciously invite them or not yes. so there's a lot of learning that needs to happen on those body mind levels of what is involved in having a practice. And, uh, you know, this is what, like when I was talking about, I'm inviting research, you know, I, I can think very easily of being a supervisor to therapists who started out not being able to have more than 12 clients a week, um, and struggling with making a living and paying for supervision and everything. And, um, You know, and it takes sometimes a torturous process, you know, and secondary training and um, uh, that, you know, I have accompanied as a supervisor, I have accompanied people into a thriving practice where they now have a more difficult client load, but they they see 25 people a week, you know, and they are booked out and they've got a waiting list. And that is something you give off. You know that body mind capacity to really provide an open space that is not conditional on the client behaving themselves you know and being a um you radiate that and uh, and that really converts um yes. and that is also the flavor that we need to be able to somehow uh, uh the impression we want to create in the website you know that we're available for that kind of thing and there's a huge variety of help that people want. Some people want superficial help in a, in a, in a life transition. Uh, some people want uh, you know, are trapped in deep suffering and primitive damage, and they want us to be available for that. Some people are suffering their their restricted sabotage potential, and we need to be available for that. So that's why I say keep it open, keep it vague, keep it nondescript, because you want to create a space for all these varieties of uh, of different therapeutic constructions you know the, the obvious kind of the, the metaphor that i sometimes use in teaching for the obvious spectrum there that is good to hold the tension that's good to hold is, is, is to use the the, um, the metaphor of the client psyche as a house and like any house it needs maintenance and maybe you discover there's a crack in the wall the client discovers there's a crack in the wall And now, is that just a crack in the wallpaper? Is that due to structural difficulties and subsidence, according to which they need very different kinds of help? And if I'm the client and I have a crack like that, I invite the builder for an estimate. And I don't want some cowboy to tell me that this is deep development or trauma and it will need ten years of structural trauma therapy that costs me tens of thousands of pounds. You know if it's a crack in the wallpaper i wanted to say it's a crack in the wallpaper you know like come for a few sessions and uh, you know uh on the other hand if it really is subsidence i don't want some kind of decorator to tell me that you know you just put a new uh piece of wallpaper on and then we just just a lick of paint and it's going to be all right because then i'm just you know in a revolving door going from from therapist to therapist thinking that it's just a quick fix so you know there needs to be that holding of that tension between the more you know the the kind of redecoration and the kind of restructuring ends of the therapeutic spectrum you know these are both both potentials that we want to be available to so that means we ourselves must not idealize you know lots of therapists idealize deep therapy and they think they need to offer you know the real deal the real deep therapy to everybody well you know <laughs> It's expensive and it involves commitment. And some people are not in a position in their lives where they're going to sign up for five years of deep, disturbing, deconstructing, reconfiguring kind of therapeutic process. So we need to become really open and non-dogmatic about our own idealizations in what we're offering.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think there are two things to this. One is. Uh, yeah we as a community and the second is i think what you spoke to a little bit is also knowing our own limitations in in that and knowing how to build that capacity uh, slowly not necessarily through breakages and reconfigurations and Actually, there's, yeah. there's one thing which i think i feel, i feel like i would like more of is also Mm. for people to realize how much you know people say therapy is costly but the the only reason that is the case is because it's not subsidized and and i think i think what people don't realize is if they would not subsidize all the tests all the blood tests or everything they take for actually psychosomatic diseases sometimes
1: Absolutely.
0: they would they're probably paying much more and they're probably much more costly for doing all those tests rather than eventually going to psychotherapy and i think Absolutely. those are those are the things that i think we need to also remember that that psychotherapy is a little bit of an emotional sherpa for for things that we are not recognizing and it needs to be starting from us valuing our own work for then Absolutely. the rest of the world to start valuing it as well. Because, um, I mean, I'm now obviously in systems and mm-hmm. when I say, actually, I don't feel like I can hold these clients, I'm often very challenged on this. Like, how can't you? Like, why, why are you even in this profession? And I'm like, well, exactly because I have that compassion, I don't want to <laughs> do that. But the mm. compassion needs to start with myself. Absolutely. If, if it doesn't start with myself, then what is that what is the thing that I'm modeling to a client?
2: <laughs> yes, I mean when people talk about the expense of therapy and especially ongoing therapy, you know, one of the one of the things I refer to is the difference in how much of their income the french spend on food and how much the english spend on food you know i think with the english it's about i don't know i can't, I can't remember exactly maybe 12 percent, 14 percent, something like that and the french spent more than 30 percent of they have a good life but they spend a lot on their food in order to have a good life well therapy is a bit like that you know are you in relation to to the luxuries of therapy are you going to be like an English person who's you know wants to wants to well more than fourteen percent is really expensive, well mm-hmm. to a French person you know, thirty percent is uh, is normal, so therapy is like that you know you pay for what you value ultimately and uh, I'm not saying that people you know there's obviously there are people in poverty that you know where there's no
1: yes. You know, there's,
2: within reach, uh, which is why I was talking about the project and offering groups and making therapy more accessible and affordable. And a lot of group therapy could be, you know, in many situations is just about as effective and helpful as individual therapy and much more affordable. So, you know, that is something that also we need to educate the public that uh, good, good group therapy can be created and can be made available. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: so we're not, we all we don't all have to be in psychoanalysis for 50 years, you know, five times a week. So. Yeah. Okay.
0: Hey, okay. I think, yeah, we're both uh, exhausted. Uh, but well, I'm not hopefully... exhausted, I
2: feel quite energized, but I've got other things yeah. to do, so.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, well, I am definitely uh, physically exhausted, but mentally energized. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah I really want to thank you for for this breath of of conversation breath depth um uh yeah it was really well, enriching um, you can see
2: I I don't get enough chances these days because I moved far away you know when I was living in England I was working a lot I was teaching a lot um I was teaching, you know, for many years I I had annual visits to Pakistan. I was teaching there. That was my kind of experimentation ground for, you know, for um, trying a different paradigm of training. Um, And I think the evidence, the results, I think were very, very promising that a different kind of offering psychotherapy training, counseling training, integrative training is, is possible, much faster, deeper, producing better therapists, uh, by whatever parameters we want to evaluate that, and I was doing a lot of that, and uh, I'm not doing enough of it. So you can hear I'm, you know, I'm sort of overflowing with the unused potential, teaching potential, uh, which is going to change in the not too distant future. But uh, right now, I really enjoyed the invitation, and uh, you know, I feel passionate about these things, and and uh, I like, you know, somebody intelligently investigating you know inquiring uh, so so yes it's uh it's interesting and it's interesting to hear that even though you're just in a way still in training you do have a deep grasp of the and clear thinking about the deep principles and and contradictions you know the kind of conflicted nature the paradoxical conflicted nature of what we're trying to do and 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 the psyche that is the it's the origin of it. Um so there are no you know it, it, it's it's a good conversation to me if there are no simplistic answers. Um
1: yes <laughs>
0: exactly yeah I'll take this as a compliment.
2: <laughs> it definitely is a compliment which doesn't mean as I said you know there are some very simple blunt things I said about you know raw feeling people are afraid of raw feeling raw feeling is important raw feeling makes for vitality and spontaneity, raw feeling makes for, you know, that's fairly simple. And we Mm -hmm. said there's seven basic emotional system, effective systems and effective neuroscience. So that's a very simple blunt statement to make. It's not as if there are not some simple things we can say, but uh, how we then uh, interact with each other and with clients that's a much less straightforward linear thing and so yeah no i think you really invited the complexity and i i i think your mind really benefits from having uh the access to the kind of more intuitive right brain embodied emotional process through gestalt and then having your scientific uh, mind there making sure you're not going you know off into wild areas of speculation only
0: yeah yeah and interestingly that's been my life journey i was a dancer and a scientist and and psychotherapy one therapist i interviewed he said psychotherapy for for him and i think for me is a um integrating principle it's a place where i can be both where Mm -hmm. i can bring all of it and and that's what i really enjoy about that and i imagine you
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think more extremely than you. I've just spent my whole adult life just doing that, apart from farming and gardening a bit, but uh, and having children and relationships. But apart from that, that's been my life. So uh, that's a a more extreme version even. uh, You know, I don't have the scientific uh, other endeavor there. So, yeah, that's my that's my vocation and that's my that's what i've invested in and there are, there are many blessings that come from it in terms of integration
0: and interesting i'm just thinking of the question who are you and like kind of mm. making that circle mm. and it seems that yeah you tell me everything we've talked about was really psychotherapy um and and it feels like that is really who you are at your core a thing. well it's,
2: it's, it's yeah. uh, be careful it's the way you and i construct therapy this is what we you and i wish it can be
0: yeah yeah no no absolutely no i'm what i'm saying uh i'm saying about you because you, norm, some people would say therapists and and. and, and but with, with this conversation was really
2: yes no i get i get what you're saying Yes, therapy. yes.
0: And, and it doesn't mean yeah it's it's open where we co-constructed here but but what you brought felt like that is really such a really big part of you
2: yes it is and uh, i think you know with what we said about the origins of psychotherapy and the and the public misconceptions of it because we in a way a lot of the time well, certainly the general public, but to, to a large extent of the profession itself, is trying to make sense of the mystery of what it is through approximations, you know, through scientific approximations, medical approximations, social work approximations, behavior modification approximations, you know, contradiction mode approximations. And um, these are reductive reifications. like you were talking about godifying things these are reductive reifications which fall foul of the mystery so a lot of the time psychotherapists fall into the trap of trying to do justice to these misconstructions of associated helping professions but not doing justice to the psyche and you know it's only when you really inhabit the psyche for its own sake by its own parameters you know by on its own terms where you're not assimilating it to another discipline uh, certainly not kind of uh, left brain scientific methodology only uh, if you're not assimilating it but trying to do justice to its own uh, logic its own you know to psycho logic rather than any other kind of logic it's only then that you get the flavor and the benefit of the mystery that's there you know and mm-hmm. otherwise you're trying to approach the mystery through uh through ideas and notions and preconceptions that can't meet it that can't do it justice you know and then of course people get disappointed There's huge promise them, and then there's all this disappointment so no i think we can say that um by really being non-dogmatically interested in the whole field, in the broad spectrum integration, and in being really interested in the contradictions, you know, like yeah. I have for years, I've, I've I've proposed this conference where we act out the conflicted, like do family constellations on the conflicted history of the psychotherapeutic field, which <laughs> really what that what that would boil down to, you know, is that we have a sort of diversity of representatives. And yes, they can have theoretical arguments about TA and gestalt and psychoanalysis and relation, you know, Jung and Freud and whatever. But the the deeper challenge is to therapize each other. And people complain about different theories and blah, 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 but really the gifts of it, only become available when you apply the ideas to each other. So if Freud becomes Jung's therapist, Jung becomes Freud's therapist, right? You know, because the the, the, the therapeutic validity of it is not in the idea, is in the application to somebody else's limited partial identity. Mm-hmm. So I've got this idea of, of, of uh, doing this this kind of huge kind of diverse simulation of family constellations where we really appreciate not just the conflicts but the the therapeutic potential which the conflicted positions have in relation to each other that would be that would be very interesting that would be a cool idea so because that that is what in a way my journey has been you know i've used klein to deconstruct reich i've used jung to deconstruct freud you know in myself i mean in as much as these are mm-hmm. fantasies People, you know, but um, I think it's that kind of really engaging in the conflicts, not just as theoretical ideas, but as applied um, relational engagements. That yeah. uh, that that I've become very non-attached to any of any any and all of them. Which means that I feel I'm harvesting the wisdom of each of the approaches whilst being fully aware of the shadow aspects and the dogmatisms and the blindnesses of each, because I've got the other one to 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 point to that. You know? So yeah, if 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 the psyche is about depth and diversity and plurality and the paradoxical holding of the tensions and contradictions then that's been my journey that's been a big part of my journey you know the, that's that's what i feel passionate about and uh, that's what keeps me going in a way because there's just mm. sheer infinite learning in engaging in the in the tensions and the contradictions and mm. allowing them to therapize each other
1: mm. yeah.
2: so that's the that's, well, that's i think might what you get and what you you know what you also investigate in through the conversation and that, i think i'm hoping that that will have an inspiring uh, effect when listened to, that that kind of non-dogmatic, pluralistic embrace of all the diversity and fragmentation, uh, that that has really rich potential for integration.
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I would stop here, although I would completely thank continue you. further. But thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you. <laughs>